Hey haunties, it's Allie here, and I'm here to talk to you about the stressful holiday season descending upon each and every one of us like the black carpet descends upon submarines, consuming all life and happiness in its wake. This episode is sponsored by Vinterra Farms CBD products. Thanksgiving and Christmas can be a lovely excuse to get family and friends together to exchange stories, food, and even gifts, but it can also be hectic. Sometimes you're thrust into the middle of a family feud when relatives from different generations with opposing views are forced to be in the same room with each other for hours on end. Thankfully, Vinterra Farms CBD products are here to make your holiday season a little less haunted. Is your uncle going on a tirade about QAnon? Is your stepdad shooting down all your interesting cryptid facts that you're trying to share with the rest of the table? Did your brother get gifted a car while you only got a Chia pet? Or maybe your mom recently got abducted by the men in black and now her body double is burning the Thanksgiving ham. Whatever your unique situation is, Vinterra Farms has the right CBD products for you. Chill out and let the haunted weirdness that comes along with extended relatives debating politics and religion dissipate into the white noise around you. Escape to your own state of relaxation by consuming Vinterra's all-natural, ethical CBD products in whatever form you desire. Tinctures, capsules, gummies, oils, and lotions are all available on Vinterra's website to help you survive at least until next year. For 15% off your entire purchase plus free shipping, head to VinterraFarmsCBD.com and type in promo code HAUNTED15 at checkout. That's V like vampire, E, N like Nessie, T like train track trussle, E-R-R-A farmscbd.com promo code haunted15. Or just check out the link in the show notes. Thank you for supporting California farmers and farm workers. And now back to your regularly scheduled haunting. Welcome back to Let's Get Haunted with your host, Nat Strawn and Allie. Welcome back, guys, to episode 129 of Let's Get Haunted. And it's almost the end of the year, which is fucking crazy. It's almost the end of season four. I know. I was thinking about that like four years. Like someone has graduated high school or college or gotten a divorce or fucking that four years anything could happen if you got a divorce in between the time that you first started listening to us and now please send us an email let's get haunted pod at gmail.com because for some reason that's very but only if they got married when we started oh that's true and divorced because if they just got of course people get divorced all the time but if they their relationship like spanned the course of let's get haunted that would be dope actually i read uh in our twitter dm someone dm'd us and it was from a while ago but i read it recently and they were saying like hey i just started listening to you guys again me and my boyfriend like had listened to LGH and it was kind of like our relationship thing that we would do together. So when we broke up, I stopped listening to the LGH oh. because it reminded me of them and yeah. it was just like hard, like it was a hard breakup. I get that. Yeah. And she was like, and I just started listening to you guys again and I just found it by mistake. Like it was, you know, oh, how cool. recommended to me again. And I listened to an episode and it was like just being back with two friends. 
oh my gosh I love that I know it was really sweet and oh, she that's was like awesome I and I really reclaimed this podcast back for myself and I just wanted to let you guys know that I'm back and I'm listening and like you know thank Dude, you fuck yeah honestly I really like to hear stuff like that because I mean thinking about when we first started to now like we have absolutely gone through mm-hmm. a bunch of shit like my ex-fiance made the theme song for this <laughs> podcast like, right yeah it's crazy like we've both gone through breakups and like moving and you had a fucking baby like you guys I just got out of jail one day maybe I'll talk about that that was not like a joke on my Instagram being like oh just just getting out of jail (laughs) celebrating with the besties like that really actually happened but uh, the point is is that we are all people and though even though some people (laughs) seem like NPCs they have like their own simulation running like they have their own like path that they're on right walking into like street poles and things like that. (laughs) I don't know. Glitching into the doorway of a grocery store. Yeah. 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 I don't know what they're doing, but it that does it does give me I don't know. It's a weird feeling. I'm sure there's like a French word for that. I'm sure. If you guys know a word in your language for that feeling of realizing that everyone else around you is alive. Let me me know what that is. Yeah, realizing that people are people. Exactly. What's even more psycho fucking insane, like rip your skin out and put it on the (laughs) wall, is that... All of the dead people in the ground no. all had their own I lives no, and they were all much. interacting with each other and they were <sighs> all like wearing clothes and coming up with art and listening to music and making jokes oh my that, God. and they all had their own society that they like created themselves. I feel like the walls are breathing right now. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> um, also, speaking of the walls breathing... Uh, our office, I have been really stoked yeah. on this week. It looks amazing. Allie put in some serious work. Um, it looks really good. Everything is like hanging on the walls and stuff. Uh, speaking of which, because in our vlog, nothing is on the wall and it looks like shit. <laughs> we'll have to do an update. There, By the time this episode comes out, I think our vlog will be out. I think so, yeah. Go to Let's Get Haunted on YouTube mm-hmm. and give that new vlog a little uh, watch oh, listen. A little thumbs up, a little comment. Yeah. And also, this is your final chance if you're hearing this uh, audio right now this is your final chance to dm us your burning questions for our annual bonus episode end of the year q a season four finale yeah this is your time to shine yeah and you guys every single year we get the same kind of questions like try to make them different this time a spicy the spicier the better i think right make right. them controversial did you see oh wait well before i dive into something um do you have any personal hauntings that you'd like to share no what are you gonna say what were you gonna say <sighs> have i have been, so many have you been following the serial killer story out of california that's happening right now up at up north right yeah yeah yeah, Stockton. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's all anyone's been talking about at work because they've been this serial killer. For those who don't know, this serial killer in Stockton, California, has been specifically targeting um, Hispanic men that like get up early to go to work. So everybody's just been talking about it at work. Like, oh, my God, like everyone make sure you're traveling in pairs and stuff. Like that's horrifying. Isn't that? It's horrifying. Um, I think the age range, don't quote me because I don't have the article in front of me, but I'm pretty sure the age range was like super wild, too. It was like 30 to 60. That is absolutely terrifying. That ho- also, what did a 30 to 60 year old Hispanic yeah. man that gets up early to go to work ever do to you? That's what I was just thinking. I was like, what 
like what could you possibly be mad at them for you right know? right yeah to me like a 30 to 60 year old dude getting up early in the morning to go to work that's like a dad yeah i don't like i have no beef with a dad right yeah, yeah. like under the radar like the majority of the world is still asleep while they're like causing traffic so you right. can't even be mad at them for that exactly so they just caught him what yes they just well maybe they arrested him a little bit ago but i just saw it on reddit that they just caught him what was his pro like what was his deal so they haven't said yet he um, was just like i fucking hate like people who get up early i maybe he's not a morning person wesley brownlee age 43 was arrested overnight quote unquote while out hunting for his next victim police chief stanley mcfadden said at a news conference with city manager harry black mayor kevin lincoln and san joaquin county district attorney tori verber salazar also since we're saving your excellent jail story for next episode <laughs> i do have a very quick uh personal yeah, i want to hear it you've been telling me oh i have like an interesting personal haunting so what is it okay well it's only tangentially related to me but the other night i was working really late on a farm and there was a different company working there it was like 8 p.m it's super dark we're like shining flashlights trying to finish what we were doing we're just like making conversation and one of the guys is like oh like what's the craziest farm story you have so we're like swapping farm stories back and forth because I know people will comment uh, on when I share stories and be like, that's fucking crazy. I don't know why you attract such haunted shit. But it's like, no, farms just attract haunted as fuck people. And so we were swapping stories. I'm like talking about my credit card being stolen. I'm talking about like the car that like flipped off the freeway and like exploded in the field. And then like the person just got out totally unharmed. Like, (laughs) you know, we're just swapping stories. And one of the guys was like, oh, yeah, one time, um, I was working on a field and the police came up and I walked over to be like, what are you guys doing here? And they went into the field and just arrested one of the workers for murder. And I was like, oh, that's fucking crazy. Like, I've never had so I've had someone investigated for murder before, but I've never had someone like arrested for murder. It was one of the people that was working with you. He was saying that he was working on a field many years ago where one of the field workers was arrested for murder. Oh, I was so deep within the story that I was like, forgot who was narrating it. Yes. Okay. 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 (laughs) So it was, I'll just set the scene. It was me and two other dudes. These two dudes are from different companies. We just happened to be working on a project together and we were the only three left in the field. It was like 8.30 p.m., super dark. We're like shining our phone flashlights trying to finish this thing we were doing. Right. Okay. So we're swapping stories and the guy's like, I had someone get arrested a field worker get arrested for murder once like that's a pretty crazy story and I was like wow that is crazy and then the other guy was like oh I can one-up you um my grandpa lived on a farm when I was little I used to play in this area that was like like a hole in the ground basically like a really big like concave portion of the ground where like a bunch of dirt had been removed like a quarry like a quarry yeah yeah but like smaller And so he's like, oh, like, you know, we used to just always run down there, like me and my friends, and we would just like use it as a soccer field, like whatever. And then when I got a little older, I asked my grandpa, like, hey, grandpa, why is this one portion of the field like unusable? Like, why hasn't it been filled in with dirt? Like, why is it concave? And his grandpa was like, oh, like many years ago, there was a serial killer and he was murdering people he worked with and burying them in that field unbeknownst to like the people that lived on that land and then the police came and dug up like 15 bodies and i forget the guy's name but he was like 15 yeah it was like a large number of bodies and i forget the guy's name i'm gonna have to ask i'm gonna have to ask the guy what the name was but he was like yeah it was like a very famous serial killer 
that like was operating in California in like the early 60s and just chose that field to like bury people. That is so stressful to me. Isn't that haunted as shit though? Wait, did he bury the bodies super deep down? I didn't ask for like foot measurements, but he said that it was like a concave depression in the earth where like him and all of his neighbor friends would always be like, oh, let's go meet up. Like it's sort of like a retention ditch type yeah but like big like they would use it to play soccer and stuff like that and i was like did you ever get any weird feelings while you were there and he was like honestly not really i don't know i could be getting this wrong it was like on your instagram story once that was like farm workers have like or something the highest rate of suicide no farmers have a super high incidence rate of suicide and it has a lot to do with how the public has just demonized farmers over generations and because Farming is not considered a career. It's considered a lifestyle. So it's like if you lose your farm, you lose everything. Most people live on their farms, right? So it's like you lose your house, you lose your vocation, you lose everything that you've ever known. And to try to relearn a whole new trade is just like not possible for a lot of farmers. So if a farmer loses their farm, they normally commit suicide. I've never heard of people not liking farmers. Like I've heard of people not liking lawyers, people not liking politicians, people not liking, uh, I don't know, like hippies, but farmers? Yeah, they fucking politicians okay. hate farmers. Oh, uh, well, politicians hate everybody. That's, yeah, but then they can't speak for the Well, rest the problem of us. is politicians have the power to sign bills into law, right? So like water restrictions are a super contentious topic right now in California where they're trying to like reduce the amount of water farmers are using when farmers are the most efficient use of water because the water isn't going to like water a lawn or like bathe yourself. It's going into producing food that literally keeps our people fed and the economy running, right? Yeah. So like cutting down on water amongst farmers when people like Kim Kardashian use enough water in one day to water a farm for two years. Like it doesn't make any sense. Wait, how do you know that about Kim Kardashian? Because she's been in the news because she's literally not giving a fuck about the water restrictions and is incurring fines, but she's so rich doesn't matter what yeah god see i just literally because i don't watch the news i don't know like i literally don't know what's going on i think it's just a haunted industry because like i've said on this podcast before the like the public views farms as a park Mm. like they think it's for their enjoyment they don't understand that it's like a business so they'll just like go on they're like wow there's an open tract of land like i think i've said on this show before like the number of times that my coworker and I have like found people, random people from the public, just like banging in their cars oh in the middle of fields is crazy. Right. And you literally have to walk up and knock on their fucking window and be like, what are you doing? It's well, pretty crazy. Yeah, that is really crazy. Um, I I didn't grow up around like commercial farmland. So this whole like meeting you and having you tell me all these stories is very interesting. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are like now like, oh, shit, am I a dick? Because like me and my boyfriend went and like, I don't know, banged on a next to a a, a thing with all those rows. I mean, I would say <laughs> <laughs> I would say hopefully a normal person would do that at night. Right. Like I'm talking about middle of the fucking day. Like yeah. not like just random people pulled off, off into a field like banging in their car. God, imagine having the energy for that. Imagine like having the free time yeah, and the like, middle of yeah. the day. Yeah. Like the, during a weekday. Wow. Only the youths. Only only the craziest most haunted folks. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah, that is a crazy personal haunting. I'm glad you told it. Yeah. 
I mean, if anyone else has any stories where like they worked with someone who ended up being a murderer, I would love to hear it. Let's get haunted pod at gmail.com. And now I would love to shout out our donors for this episode. Olivia M, Heidi V, October N, Bella, Sierra M, Maria O, Amy S, Michael R, Molly and Connor, Johanna, Katie, Sydney, and Haley, and Maria O again. And I would love to give a really, really big shout out to Katie, Sydney, and Haley, Molly and Connor, and Michael R for their extremely generous donations. And also Bella, thank you guys so, so much. Whether your donation is big or small, it really all helps and adds up. But I just wanted to give a very special shout out to those people because They left very generous donations and thank you so much. We could really use all of those donations. It really means a lot to us. Every donation counts. And if you would like to donate to our episode, you can just check out our show notes and all the information will be there. Or you can buy a piece of merch, which Natalia has handcrafted with love on letsgethaunted.com. Yeah, you guys, tune in there. And we're going to be having some new merch coming out soon, too, for the holiday schmoldays. Go ahead and order right now, because who the fuck knows what's going to happen with the post system? They just have been fucking us all lately. You never know what's going to go on. And I always see comments on our Instagram from people who are like, fuck, I didn't like pull the trigger on the last merch dump because I was like, oh, I'm just going to wait. Like, or maybe something better is coming out. And then they always regret it. Yeah, you guys, we are not a uh, company. Like, we're two (laughs) girls who have our own lives and our own shit. So, like, if you think our merch drops, like, if you think we're going to perform our merch like a normal business would and, like, you're thinking, like, oh, yeah, I'll just wait for it to go on sale or, like, I'll wait for the next merch drop, there might not be another merch drop for another five years. We're very chaotic. We don't know what's going on ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our business plan is a lack of business plan. Yeah, we're afraid to fail, so we just buy really small quantities. Actually, this was the biggest quantity of shit I've ever gotten. Oh, really? We're almost out. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, wow, guys. Okay, go to letsgethaunted.com and buy up that merch. Now, Natalia, I have a very interesting story for you today. Are you ready to just get into this episode? Please, I'm ready. Natalia. Yes. Today's story begins and ends with a man named John Henry Blymeyer. On May 28, 1929, he would arrive at Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. John shuffled off the prison bus, his arms and legs in shackles, and as his feet met the hard ground below, he laid his eyes on what would now, he thought, be his home until his death. The prison was built in a circular wagon wheel layout with low domed doorways and cells, domed to resemble the austere architecture of a church and low so that prisoners would have to bow upon entering and exiting their cells. As he passed through the guard gates, John was assigned the prisoner number of 5407. When the building was constructed in 1829, Eastern State Penitentiary was the largest and most expensive public structure ever erected in the United States. And it even offered tours to the public who could freely walk about the prison and talk with prisoners for a small fee. Author Charles Dickens and French aristocrat Alexis de Tocqueville were two such visitors who had passed through the same guard gates which had just shut behind John Blymeyer. 
After his life sentence was handed down by the judge in court, John shocked the courthouse when, rather than expressing remorse or fear at his sentence, he instead famously remarked, I am happy now. He couldn't know it then, but John was in for a rude awakening. Publicly, the penitentiary's ethos emphasized the importance of spiritual reflection and change of its prisoners, not just their punishment. While this sounded progressive and humane to the members of the public and the politicians visiting the cell blocks, in practice, this quote-unquote spiritual reflection was carried out through barbaric torture disguised as penance. Punishments carried out by prison staff included dousing prisoners in freezing water outside during winter months, chaining their tongues to their wrists in such a fashion that struggling against the chains would cause the tongue to tear, strapping prisoners into chairs with tight leather restraints for days on end, and putting the worst behaved prisoners into a pit called the hole, an underground cell block dug under cell block 14 where they would have no light, no human contact, and almost no food for as long as two weeks at a time. Some of the era's most notorious gangsters and criminals would be housed at Eastern State. Infamous men like Al Scarface Capone, who would spend eight months in this penitentiary the same year John's life sentence began. The most famous bank robber in American history, William Slick Willie Sutton, would also do time here, serving 11 years total at Eastern State in the 1940s. John was a far cry from the typical thieves and con men he would live with for the next 42 years. Raised on a small homestead in the farming community of Hallam in York County, John was described as being sickly and thin in his youth, and he would remain much smaller than many of his younger siblings throughout his life. So, how did little, unassuming John Blymeyer end up with a life sentence at one of America's biggest and baddest prisons next to some of the most infamous inmates of the era all before the age of 35? Depending on who you ask, the story changes dramatically with some believing that John was falsely imprisoned, while others believe that John should have been given the electric chair. In order to even begin to understand this convoluted tragedy full of magic, curses, spells, and witches, Whoa. we must rewind our narrative backwards, back before John ever laid eyes on this torturous penitentiary, back before his trial and sentencing, back even before he was born. What? Back to the 1600s. What? Oh my god, I'm so excited. Okay, now I understand. So, so much of this was sounding familiar, and now I remember from uh, I've, where I've heard of Eastern State Penitentiary is because we, the Alcatraz episode we did, briefly, I talked about You're it because, right, because Scarface. Yeah, because Scarface went to this penitentiary first before being right. transferred. Yes, and they had to transfer him like on this bus and then they You're put totally them on right. the train and then they put the train on a boat that went over. Yeah, and then yeah. people were like taking pictures so they had like a dummy boat or something, right? Or, yeah. Like, yeah, the whole thing is nuts. And convoluted. And, yeah. yeah, crazy. But yeah, just the prison practices of the 1920s were so haunted. 
on their own that now I'm assuming we're going back to like the witch trials of the 1600s based off what you've said. You're in for a real fucking treat. But before I embark on this journey, because this was just the intro, is there anything that has jumped out to you so far? Like, Well, I mean, when you said that they were spending two weeks in the hole... I was thinking of how, I was just thinking of that mental state, you know? Well, and the whole, it was part of a larger issue at this penitentiary because they were one of the first penitentiaries to implement solitary confinement. Yeah, that's... Which is, like, now we know, like, is a horrible form of torture, right? But at the time, they were thinking... This also really just emphasizes how back in the day, there really wasn't a separation between church and state, even Mm -hmm. if perhaps that was the original intention, depending on who you talk to, maybe it wasn't. It really didn't exist back then. They built this penitentiary to resemble a church. And they intentionally made the doorways into the cells like lower so that they'd have to bow upon entering their cell to like, you know, for penance for their sins. And also the cells. Righteous. Absolutely. And the cells had circular skylights that were referred to as the eye of God. And the intention was for these prisoners to really feel like they were being punished for some sin that they had committed. Wow. Like God gives a fuck if you do tax fraud. Right. (laughs) You know what I mean? But now we go back to the 1600s. Part one, Pennsylvania. In 1681, the British colonial province of Pennsylvania was founded in North America when King Charles II of England gifted the land to a man named William Penn. This territory offering was meant to repay a debt that the king's father had never paid to Penn's father, and the name Pennsylvania was chosen to honor him. Upon receiving the gift, Penn immediately set sail for his new home, arriving in modern-day Delaware in 1682. Drawn to the teachings of the Quakers, William Penn officially converted at the age of 22, despite the disapproval of his nobleman father. Quakers were relatively strict Christians in the 17th century, known for refusing to bow and refusing to take off their hats to those considered to be quote-unquote social superiors. The Quakers believed that all men were created equal under God, and therefore social status and caste customs were irrelevant. This was a controversial belief at the time, since English society believed that God himself had appointed the members of the monarchy, and that therefore certain families were quote-unquote closer to God than others. Quakers then were treated as heretics because of their beliefs, and because of their failure to pay tithes. They also refused to swear oaths of loyalty to the king, since they believed that this was following the command of Jesus not to swear. Quaker religious services were also considered strange and improper, since there were no rituals and no professional clergy, and many Quakers disavowed the concept of original sin. God's communication was believed to come from each individual directly, and if so moved, the individual was encouraged to share his revelations, thoughts, or opinions with the whole group, rather than having one appointed priest or pastor who issued organized sermons. As a deeply religious Quaker, Penn was an early advocate of democracy, religious freedom, and pacifism, successfully carrying out many peace treaties in his new home of Pennsylvania, which was already inhabited by both indigenous tribes and Dutch and Swedish colonists. Penn himself had lived through many adversities prior to this point, even being imprisoned several times in England and threatened with a life sentence for blasphemy due to his outspoken criticism of the church. Penn's commitment to peace and tolerance above all else led to freedom of religion in the area, 
with groups allowed to practice their beliefs free from consequences. Just before traveling to North America, William Penn had made many trips to Germany on behalf of the Quaker faith, something that would then result in a large population of Germans moving to Pennsylvania, creating the settlement known as Germantown, which still exists today. Yeah, I've heard of Germantown. Yeah! This population of Germans was mostly comprised of religious dissenters fleeing from religious persecution in Catholic provinces, including the province of Salzburg in Austria, which we learned about last year during episode 87, The Witches, Ghosts, and Werewolves of Musham Castle. Now, there's no time to discuss all of the hauntings that happened during that episode, but do you remember anything at all from that story, Natalia? I'll never forget. The trials were held directly underneath the cells. Yes. So they would just open it up like a trap door and people would just fall into court, like break legs and stuff. Yeah. Because they just literally like fell eight feet onto the ground. Exactly. Yeah. So in that story, we learned about this crazy fucking castle, which if you want to hear more about, you can go back to. But the way that this relates to this story is... The people that were living through these witch trials in Germany, Austria, and the surrounding areas were pretty fucking terrified of being accused of being a witch because there was no way to prove you weren't. Right, yeah, I do remember that too. Like, if someone accused you and you said, no, I'm not, then you go to this witch trial where they torture you until you say you are. And then they kill you anyway. And then they kill you anyways, yeah. Exactly. Yes. So the way that this relates to this story is that If you were accused of being a heretic, that was another way to just ensure that you were either going to be imprisoned for life or murdered. So a lot of people in Germany at this time were looking for an area where they would be able to practice their religion free from harm. So according to Wikipedia, early colonial Pennsylvania ended up becoming this melting pot of various European religious influences, as William Penn's promise of religious tolerance opened the doors for many other Christian sects such as the Anabaptists, the Quakers, the Lutherans, the German Reformed, Catholics, and all manner of religious mystics and free thinkers. It is from this blending of cultures and religions that the Pennsylvania German powwow tradition was born. Natalia, have you ever heard of German powwow? Um, no. Does it have anything to do with, like, the indigenous people of North America's powwows? Sort of, yeah. It uh, The term is derived from that. So now we enter part two, the story of powwow. Simply put, powwow in this context is the term given to a type of folk magic which originated in the culture of the Pennsylvania Dutch. Most modern Americans probably hear the term powwow and immediately think of Native American ceremonies involving dancing and music making. And if that's what comes to mind, you're not wrong because the term powwow or powwow, as it was sometimes spelled, was appropriated from the indigenous Algonquin language of Naragonset by 17th century missionaries. According to the online etymology dictionary, the term originally described a healer, a shaman, or a medicine man, and was derived from the verb which meant to use divination or to dream, which was related to the noun pa-wa, meaning one who dreams. Hmm. Now, before I go on to explain what powwow means in this story, I do need to make sure that everyone understands who the Pennsylvania Dutch were. While there were actual Dutch immigrants from the Netherlands living in the colonies during this time, 
The Pennsylvania Dutch actually refers to the German immigrants we discussed earlier who fled religious persecution in their home countries and made their way to Pennsylvania, attracted by William Penn's promise of religious tolerance. They were called the Pennsylvania Dutch in spite of being German because the German word for German is Deutsch, Deutsch. Yeah. which yeah. was later Americanized into the word Dutch because it was easier for the other colonists to pronounce. Yeah, that's funny. It's interesting. It is interesting because there were actual Dutch people here, but that's right. not who we're talking about. No. Yeah. Although most of the so-called Pennsylvania Dutch were Protestant, their folk religious culture was deeply rooted in centuries old practices, and they believed in things like using blessings for everyday purposes, praying to saints for things, and carrying sacred objects around for protection and healing. They're pagans. Well, actually, it comes from the pre-Reformation Catholic beliefs of, like, really? veneration of saints. And, yeah, and I'm sure it also draws on, like, medieval... Well, we'll talk about this in a little bit. It also draws on, like, some medieval practices and things like that. But if you talk to these people, they don't view it as pagan rituals. They view it as, like, deeply ingrained Christian principles that come from Jesus Christ himself. Right, like carrying a talisman. Right, and if you ask them about it, and we're going to watch a video that interviews a man that practices the Pennsylvania Dutch powwow practices, he basically says, like, anyone who calls it witchcraft is just, like, uneducated because it's not witchcraft. It's, like, in order to do powwow, you have to believe in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you can't do it. So it's super interesting. I had never heard of it before, so I was immediately like, what the fuck is this? These practices were then brought with the Germans who immigrated to North America and flourished amongst the Pennsylvania Dutch. They were not seen as being blasphemous or contrary to Christianity. They were instead seen as compliments to the religion and even part of it. Seeing the similarities between indigenous powwow ceremonies and their own, the term powwow was then adopted by the Pennsylvania Dutch to describe their folk medicine practices. According to Wikipedia, blending aspects of folk religion with healing charms, Powwowing, as it was called, includes a wide range of healing rituals used primarily for treating ailments in humans and livestock, as well as securing physical and spiritual protection and good luck in everyday affairs. A practitioner was sometimes referred to as a powwower, but terminology varies by region. These folk traditions continue still today, both in rural and urban settings, and have spread across North America. People who practiced powwowing were often women, but not always, and these people would use prayer as well as locally accepted folk remedies to achieve a desired outcome. Because these were individualized prayers and not rote incantations, the practice was seen as acceptable among the mostly devout Christians and was very popular well into the 1940s. The origins of a majority of the charms and spells utilized by the powwow are generally agreed upon to be remnants of medieval folk charms used by superstitious Catholics against illness and witchery. The powwow practitioner is more closely allied with theology than medicine and feels he is a mediator between the patient and God. So how does one learn powwow? Well, there were a lot of books that were thought to contain spells and charms for simple things like protection and health, and the most important one was obviously the Bible. However, the Bible was not the only powwow text. For example, some practitioners primarily used a book called the Sixth and Seventh Books of Moses. These books were thought to be written by Moses himself, but due to being lost for thousands of years, the books were unable to be included as chapters of the Bible. 
The sixth and seventh books of Moses explain simple charms for things like turning your luck around or warding off an illness, but they also describe incantations that can be used to carry out some of the miracles performed by Jesus himself in the Bible. What? Okay, how do we turn the water into wine? These are the questions. Like, there, I didn't, obviously, I didn't read the sixth and seventh books of Moses in preparing for this, but I feel like I should because that's crazy information. Yeah, how do we start a religion? The most popular modern powwow manual was written in 1820 by Pennsylvania Dutch healer John George Homan in his book, The Long Lost Friend. Homan lays out the different spells and talismans needed for day-to-day -day magic. The spells varied greatly from simple remedies for getting rid of a headache to more complicated ones that would freeze thieves in their tracks. But don't take my word for it. Let's hear what self-described powwow artist Rob Chapman has to say about powwow on his YouTube channel. Hi, my name's Rob Chapman and I'm a powwow artist, also known as a browker. And most of you watching this video will already have a pretty good idea of what that means. But for those who are new to this area of study, I feel it's important to know what a powwow really is and what we really do. Homan's book outlined the simple techniques and charms for affecting cures for common ailments for both men and animals. But what is powwow and how does it work? To put it simply, powwow is Christian faith healing. It's a series of charms and cures that relies on the belief and power of Jesus Christ and God. A powwow functions as a healer for his or her community, and a powwow might also be called on to create a charm or talisman of protection or blessing for those who need such things. All of the work of a powwow is done in the name of God and in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at some of the more common powwow charms used for healing. And these are a combination of spoken charms and hand gestures. In addition to soothing burns or healing bruises, a powwow might also be called upon to make a remedy for a stomach condition or to heal a sick cow you know, whatever was needed. Um, on occasion, the powwow might also be called on to make a protective charm or talisman of some sort. And back in the day of the early settlers, everybody's enemy was witchcraft. Protective charms might include written letters of protection, like this example allegedly written by God himself in 1783. Okay, it says to stop blood. Okay, to heal burns, three holy men went out walking. They did bless the heat and the burning. They blessed that it might not increase. They blessed that it might quickly cease. To walk securely in all places. Jesus walks with your name. He is your head. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, this is literally just witchcraft, but I get it. It's like it's like they're they're doing magic by not bringing the magic forth through themselves or through their sacrifices, but through the magic that God has, basically. Yes, and they vehemently deny that it is witchcraft. Like they're in the comments to this YouTube video, there were a lot of people. It was mostly like a supportive comment section, and I'm gonna read some of the comments. But there were also people that were like any form of like incantation is anti-God. You can't say that you are like carrying out these charms in the name of God because the Bible specifically says that sorcery is like, you know, blasphemous. And then there were people commenting on that being like, no, like straight up, you just don't understand because you weren't born into this culture. It's a very specific subculture called Pennsylvania Dutch. And this goes back through generations and generations. And it's like, you can't look at it through the modern lens of Christianity 
because it's just something super sacred that has only been passed down amongst this community. So like if you're not Pennsylvania Dutch or your relatives weren't Pennsylvania Dutch, like it's debatable whether or not you could even successfully carry out a powwow mm. because you're just not born into it. And so some of the comments had people talking about their experience with powwow, which I thought was really interesting because like I said earlier, prior to researching this story, I had never even heard of it. It kind of reminds me like the movements he was doing and stuff with his hands. And you guys go to our Instagram at Let's Get Haunted mm -hmm. and look at this shit because it kind of reminds me of like um, like a Baptist, like super, you know, the priests who are like the power of God and they like put their hand on your forehead oh, and yeah, you faint yeah. Or and speaking fall down. in tongues. Yeah, yeah. It, it's sort of like... I feel like it's in the same, like they might be friends. I think also if you talk to those people, they would say the same thing. Like, no, it's not witchcraft. Like, it's not evil that I'm speaking in tongues, right? Like, this right. is just God's a part of my religion. Me. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, so I'm going to ask you to read some of these comments that I picked out. The first comment is from Teresa Ridge. It says, my family lived in the coal region of Pennsylvania. A little old lady who gave powwows to sick and injured lived close by, smoking her corncob pipe on her porch. She grew herbs and treated sick, and used only herbs and children holding hands in a circle around the sick, sang prayers to cure. In the 1930s, Grandmom sent her infant covered in boils after doctors couldn't help. The boils disappeared after her powwow. Hmm, six people gave a thumbs up. This next one's from Michael Day says, my great-grandfather Ed Day was a powwow. I never met him, as he passed before I was born. He was from Green Springs. I've heard stories from my dad about the powwowing he did. Also, while working for a customer during the 90s, I was asked about my last name. The customer remembered, as a boy, being brought to see my great-grandfather with his ailment. I've also run into one other person who had apparently been taken to see Ed as a child. I think he would have been practicing powwow during the 1920s up until his death in 1963. The next one's from Fawn Johnson. My mother told me that her grandmother was a powwow, said that many town folk would come to her house to be healed. I'm a nurse and work in long-term care. One of my patients who lived in my hometown told me that she was brought to see my great-grandmother when she was ill, and she healed her. My mother said that she would lay hands on them and quote scriptures from the Bible. I found your information very useful and educating. Thank you. The next one's from Austin Dillon. It says, I was always told my great-great-grandpa could stop bleeding and remove warts by saying verses from the Bible. My family is from West Pennsylvania. My dad said he was a warlock, but I knew he couldn't be if he was saying Bible verses. This must be what he was doing. Tiffany Warmbaugh says, My grandma was cured of diphtheria when she was a child. There was nothing left for the doctor to do, and he told her parents to call in the local powwow doctor. He stayed with her through the night, and in the morning, her fever broke, and a worm was pulled from her mouth above her top front gum. I'm shocked right now. Yes. I have so many thoughts. My first thought is that I would love to go and have a powwow done. I absolutely love uh, self-care and I love like getting a massage, like uh, having people like read your fortunes, like, you know, any sort of like ritual shit that someone could do. I get really excited about, which is why you guys, I think it's important to carry like little trinkets on you all the time and give them to people because they really feel like something magic has happened. Even Reiki, like some of the comments on this video that we just watched, 
um, were like, hey, I noticed similarities between like Reiki and energy work and light work and some of the hand motions the powwower was doing on their patient. Yeah. Right? So I do think like the Wikipedia article says, like this practice has probably spread and like even been so pervasive even still today that we just might not even know that we're kind of incorporating aspects of the Pennsylvania Dutch powwow into our everyday life. Yeah, I heard that Dutch thing about how they the people thought that they were German because they were saying Deutsch. I heard that from my AP US history class with Mr. Wiley. Shout out Mr. Wiley, who is now a communist and lives in Russia. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. What the fuck, Mr. Wiley? <laughs> he was, well, I mean, this was before he, I saw on Facebook that he moved to Russia and became a communist like this was like probably 10 or 15 years ago shout out mr wiley don't even know if you're alive anymore but (laughs) (laughs) if anyone listens to this podcast who possibly went to my high school or knows who i'm talking about leave a comment oh this is also reminding me this is totally unrelated but it's reminding me the only teacher that i have followed on facebook i think is my old italian teacher from college and one time he just like uploaded he like didn't really speak English and he accidentally uploaded a full on picture of his social security card to Facebook. What? Oh my God. I thought you were going to say his dick. Social security card is worse. No, it was his social security card, his green card and a selfie of him shirtless in a mirror. And he uploaded all three to Facebook at once. And I like DM'd him and was like, Hey, like, I don't know if you know this, but like you accidentally like posted this. And I like copy pasted the link and he just responded and was like, ah alisa like how are you like oh and then God. didn't delete any of the stuff i was like okay was that a flex like was he like look i have a green card and <laughs> i have a social security card and here's me shirtless maybe it's possible he also know. used to try to get me to drive out to Ojai to get him unpasteurized goat's milk which is like illegal i'm pretty sure and so he'd be like you need to go because he found out i was from ventura area which he was like near Ojai, and he would always be like oh lisa can you go out and like get me this like black market goat's milk and like bring it back to me like what? And this I, is crazy. I thought you were going to say he wanted me to go get him weed or like he wanted no, me to go get him like some like sort of uh, contraband. And the no. fact that it's black market unpasteurized goat's milk. Is that gross? What the fuck? Well, like, you, can, you can get sick off of it. But yeah, it, it sounds gross. Well, he wanted it really bad and I never did it. And then I also think I already told this story before, but there was another time that I was taking a makeup test in his office during office hours and he shared his office with a bunch of other language teachers. And right in the middle of me taking my test, like there are other teachers in this area he just goes alisa have you ever heard of hmm and he's like really thinking hard and he's like the peppermint rhinoceros <laughs> what is and that? i was like the spearmint rhino the like strip club and he was like yes yes the spearmint rhino the peppermint rhinoceros yes uh i met i meet a man on the internet uh, beautiful man beautiful man he tells me he works at peppermint rhinoceros in Oxnard and I know you are from there would you like would you be willing to go with me to like meet this man and oh I my God. and all the teachers just like turn around in horror and they're like because they all know what it is it's a fucking really popular chain of strip clubs in yeah, California yeah. and they're all like what the fuck is happening right now and I was like um I mean I guess yeah like if you want to go like let me know i know where it is like but i did you go did you take it no because i after i left i have a feeling that one of the teachers was like dude you just invited a student to a strip club like you need to like calm your shit because then he never brought it up ever again after that 
Wow. But he was a delight. Like, he was awesome. He just, like, didn't understand. He sounds awesome. Yeah. Like, he just thought he was going to meet, like, a cool dude to, like, date and didn't realize that it was, like, not. And it's probably the dude was just, like, thinking he was being really flirty. Like, oh, yeah, come see me at work. Because he's like, oh, I'll give you a lap dance. Right. Like, you know, you'll see me, like, being sexy, dancing around or whatever. Right. Or, like, maybe he was a bouncer there. I don't know. But, I like to think that he was dancing. But anyway, shout out to teachers that add you on Facebook after you've <laughs> taken their class. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thank you for providing us with some of the most chaotic uh, source <laughs> material we've ever witnessed in our lives. Absolutely. All right. So now back to the story. So at this point in the story, you might be asking yourself, what does powwow and the Pennsylvania Dutch have to do with this guy, John Henry Blymeyer, who was imprisoned for life in Eastern State Penitentiary? Part three, John Henry Blymeyer. John Henry Blymeyer was born on December 27, 1894, to parents Emmanuel Blymeyer and Mary Magdalena Kennard. In 1920, John married Lily Bell Alloway, a woman six years his junior, and together they had three kids, Richard, Josephine, and Thomas. The Blymeyer family was well-established in York County, Pennsylvania, the same county where John was born in 1894, where his father was born in 1867, and where his father's father was born in 1829. York County itself is described by author John Gibson as one of great significance. Gibson writes the following about York in 1886. Quote, There is no portion of the United States in which there is centered more of historic interest than that occupied by the county of York in the state of Pennsylvania. In its cemeteries lie buried the remains of two of the original signers of the Declaration of Independence. The English, who came over to this continent with William Penn, came from a spirit of adventure. The forests disappeared before the people, and as has been said, like the lichens and mosses of nature, they fastened themselves to the fertile soil where they were planted and the agricultural regions of this commonwealth where they settled are the boast of Pennsylvanians everywhere. They seem to have paid little attention at first to the political features of their new home. They accepted the freedom they enjoyed as a means of exercising their industry and of practicing their thrift. They seemed to dwell apart from others and formed, as it were, a separate population, and in many portions of the state to this day, they are distinguishable from their fellow citizens, maintaining a language peculiarly their own. For a long time, with conservation in books in German, they and their children were ignorant of the English tongue. They preserved their usages and held among themselves the superstitions of the peasantry of the land from which they came. The howl of the dog the hoot of the owl, the croak of the raven were to them prognostics of evil. They believed in dreams, in love spells and charms, and in incantations for the relief of aches and hemorrhages. Sorcery and witchcraft were as much matters of reality to them as to the New Englander. The horseshoe nailed to the door was fatal to the witch, and the tail or ear of the black cat or young dog would counteract the machinations of the sorcerer. I didn't know that the horseshoe nailed to the door was, like, because of a witch. I thought you're just supposed to have it because it makes it's lucky because it, like, holds the luck in. Right. Yeah, I can neither confirm or deny what this guy is saying. I would say probably, <laughs> like, what he's writing. Like, as I'm reading it, I'm like, this sounds, like, kind of offensive to the Pennsylvania Dutch. Like, he's like, 
they were ignorant to the English tongue and, and continued to speak their own language and continued on with their like witchcraft primitive like traditions. Whereas we just heard from a guy who like is a powwower from that culture that like that would be super offensive, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not witchcraft at all. So I don't know if this man has all of his facts in a row, but the point of reading this is that this was like a really popular tome that was written in the late 1800s and like is even still preserved today and like people you can find it very easily online because it's considered this historic text on the county of york in pennsylvania and so this was at least the public perception of the type of people that were living in this area at the time like the pennsylvania dutch were known even to people not in that community as quote unquote people for whom these superstitions in a modified form linger amongst their descendants even in these days of education. That's a quote from that guy. So there's this public perception that these people are kind of mystical, right? Like they have their own belief system, their own unique culture, and they kind of keep to themselves in York County. The Blymeyer family, as I said, lived in York County for many generations. And both John's father and his grandfather were well known throughout the Pennsylvania Dutch community in York County as gifted powwowers. There were even rumors that John's grandfather owned a pet owl that could talk. (gasps) Whoa. Isn't that fucking dope? Yeah, that's really cool. That's like the pinnacle of of magic. Like if you have an animal that speaks to you. Yeah. You've like transcended all of my expectations and I will listen to anything you have to say. (laughs) (laughs) The area of York County in which the Blymeyers lived was the small farming community of Hallam. In the year 1900, Hallam had only about 400 people living in it, but the population would rise consistently over the years, jumping to 472 by 1910, 492 people by 1920, and 771 people by 1930. In the 1700s, York County was known for its production of wheat, rye, corn, and oats, and agriculture was of immense importance to the Pennsylvania Dutch. In an article written by June Lloyd, a librarian at the York County History Center, she describes the importance of the agrarian lifestyle of the early settlers as such. Quote, We point with pride to our rich agricultural and industrial heritage, but do we often think about how that intertwined heritage evolved? The land here was fertile and plentiful. The majority of York County settlers were from Germanic lands and had been impoverished by years of warfare, and they came here for economic opportunity. William Penn had sent agents to Europe to entice them to, s- to help settle his new colony. These Pennsylvania Germans, as well as the English Quakers and Scot-Irish Presbyterians, who also settled in bands across York County, sure knew how to farm. Early settlers came in small groups of several families. Working together, they could quickly build small log houses, clear fields, and plant seeds, which they may have brought with them. Space was extremely limited on immigrant ships. Families only had room in their trunks for bare necessities, which was normally clothing, household utensils, a little bit of food, and a Bible. As they worked their way westward from the port of Philadelphia, they would have picked up necessary tools for sustenance, an axe to clear the trees for farming and cut logs for shelter, a spade and hoe to till the soil, fish hooks and firearms to harvest game. These tools and their way of life were not so indifferent to the Native Americans who had lived right here not long before. However, there was one notable difference. The Native Americans had seemingly limitless land on which to roam. When the soil began to be depleted from repeated crops of corn and beans, or game became less plentiful, 
they could pack up their few possessions and build a new village at a more fertile spot. The new settlers from Europe were tied to the land that they had purchased from Penn. They couldn't just move to another parcel or a township or two over, likely someone else was already buying that plot anyway. So the farmers were inexorably tied to their plot of land and had to learn to restore productivity to the soil that was being depleted of its nutrients." End quote. So basically what this quote tells us is that these people who came over from Europe were more fortunate than the ones that like were killed in witch trials or like imprisoned for their beliefs because they must have had a little bit of money to even be able to like come over and purchase this right. land from William Penn. Right. But after purchasing the land, they oftentimes would have like nothing left to their name. Yeah. And so everyone in the family would have to work the land and they had to find creative ways to get the land to remain fertile when you're using the same crops over and over again without a break, that's not normally possible. So they had to come up with ways to like crop rotate, fallow land, and still find ways to make ends meet. So unsurprisingly, much like the rest of their neighbors, the Blymeyer family's primary income was farming. While the patriarchs of the lineage also carried out powwow rituals on the side for community members. Although John's father and grandfather were considered to be successful powwowers, the tradition of powwow frowns upon setting prices for rituals and charms. Instead, those who are seeking the help of a powwow practitioner are encouraged to donate whatever they think is right, usually a small amount of money or maybe even a small amount of goods. As such, the Blymeyers were not wealthy, something reflected in the federal census taken in 1920, where it was noted that they were growing tobacco plants on farmland that they didn't even own. As a child, John Blymeyer was said to be sickly and thin, and he had trouble both with his schooling and his work ability. He wasn't much help to his father and grandfather on the farm, often being too ill and too small to perform manual labor, and his illnesses caused him to miss a lot of school. As a result, John had no choice but to drop out at the age of 14 and, being unable to perform the hard laborer of a farm worker, decided to seek a less laborious position in the larger town of York, eventually gaining employment rolling cigars in a factory at 15 years old. York was only about 10 miles from his family's farmstead, so John was able to continue living at home while commuting via horse to his job each day. Wow, living the dream. I don't know, man. Rolling, hand-rolling cigars at age 15, you gotta fucking ride your horse 20 miles round trip. Sounds fun to me, just the horse part. Okay, if we minus the fact that he has a chronic illness, if we subtract <laughs> the fact that he's 15 and all that, you're right, it is the dream. To yeah. just ride your horse around town. I feel like work wouldn't be so bad if you got to ride a horse there. Maybe, maybe so. We don't know what his attitude was. Maybe he was fucking pumped. <laughs> Everyone else is like towing, like tilling the land and like lifting heavy things yeah. and he just gets to ride his horse and roll a cigar. Maybe that was like the 1900s equivalent of like cushy. Being like some executive, right? <laughs> According to some versions of this story, John's never-ending stream of illnesses caused him to seek help as a teen from different powwow practitioners in his community. Despite his father and grandfather's best efforts, the typical charms and incantations used by the Pennsylvania Dutch never seemed to make John any better, and he soon began looking outside his family for relief. One well-known practitioner in York County was a man named Nelson D. Remmeyer. Nelson's family had immigrated to York County sometime in the mid-1800s from Germany, and they too were involved in farming. However, the Remmeyers were more successful than the Blymeyers and owned their own farm and farmhouse. 
The success of the Remires caused people in the community to believe that they must be adept at performing charms and rituals, and as such, those in need often sought out the help of the Remires for cures of various ailments or issues with pests on their farms. John decided Remire was his best bet at being cured of his sickness, and he set out to visit him one day. Remire lived in a modest wooden farmhouse about 18 miles south of the farm that the Blymires were renting on a property known as Hex Hollow. According to some versions of the tale, after John explained his request to Nelson, Nelson simply laid his hand on his forehead, recited several charms, and sent John on his way. And miraculously, for a number of years after this moment, John did feel much better, much healthier, and much more energetic. Wow. Nelson's charms, he thought, must have worked. Feeling much less sick and more sure of himself, John continued to work in the cigar factory and even took up the family tradition of powwowing on the side. According to author Crawford Smith in an article for Crime Reads, quote, Blymeyer soon made a name for himself at the cigar factory one afternoon when he cured a rabid dog. As the what? day yes, that's impossible. As the day shift was leaving, someone cried out, "Mad dog!" and a collie with foam dripping from its mouth rushed the crowd of workers at the front door. Blymeyer pushed his way to the front of the crowd and stood between his co-workers and the collie, which was still howling and frothing. He looked the dog straight in the eye and muttered the proper incantation from the book Long Lost Friend, saying, Dog, hold thy nose to the ground. God made both me and thee hound, and then placed his palm across the dog's forehead before making the sign of the cross. The results were immediate and amazing. According to eyewitness Amos King, quote, What happened next we couldn't believe our eyes. This here big dog stops frothing at the mouth. Before we know it, John's patting his head and the dog's licking his hand. Then Blymeyer walks down the street and the dog just follows, wagging his tail like he belonged to him. I tell you, the next day we all of us knew who John H. Blymeyer was. This is really interesting. This makes me wonder if like Jesus Christ was actually... A powwower? Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I think the only way to know for sure is to like integrate ourselves into this culture and try the spells, right? Maybe yeah. we should buy the book. Yeah. I mean, I feel like they'll probably be like, no, you have to be, you know, Pennsylvania Dutch. That's true. Maybe but actually, I am Pennsylvania Dutch. Are you? There's Strawntown in Pennsylvania. Now that I think about it, yeah. My, like, on my dad's side of the family, my ancestral family home was for sale. We were looking at it. It was, like, beautiful. It's, like, I think it was, like, $3.5 million. Oh, and it was, like, a big farmland. And there was, like, a like a fucking cauldron in it and like the sink was one of those like lever things that you go i mean it was like an yeah, old like ass pump. house yeah. yeah yeah and we were all just looking at the pictures and fantasizing about it because yeah they were they were germans that had gone to Strawntown, pennsylvania okay then that just makes me think you need to go see a powwower like you're gonna be super upset when like what? just a brown girl from la is like hey guess what i have a paranormal podcast and like i heard about this and um so i need you to know that like my ancestors are actually like pennsylvania dutch and so like now i'm gonna be a powwower okay but what <laughs> if they're super pumped because they're like wow finally somebody like gets it that like we're not right. crazy and like is interested 
interested in learning about it. You never know. Right. Like, maybe that guy will just be like, oh, yeah, will you tag me? Like, we'll do a yeah. YouTube channel How together. How many streams do you guys get a month? <laughs> just, like, find another clout chaser. <laughs> like, but yeah, I think need... it's worth it. Yeah. Capitalize okay. on the clout to learn charms and help our podcast. Love that. Love that. Soon, Blymeyer's stock. So this incident where he, like, fucking heals this rabid dog. Yeah, we didn't even talk about no. that. That's crazy. It's fucking nuts. And there are witnesses who, like, attest to this because the 1920s was not that long ago. Yeah, like, ask the dog. Yeah. Like, we need the dog to just give testimony and this story i'm telling you by the way a crazy ass documentary was made about this that like interviewed people who were still alive that like saw this shit firsthand and they all like truly believed that he had killed this dog i believe it and maybe he did after he fucking cures this dog everyone working in this cigar factory is like holy shit forget nelson raymeyer like forget these other families that are doing these powwow rituals for us like we're just gonna go to john for everything we need because we fucking work with him right right so he gained this reputation for being one of the guys to see in york county if you needed help with something this reputation had some advantages for example blymeyer's confidence rose higher and he married a beautiful woman six years his junior in 1920 but this newfound reputation also had its disadvantages for example since the cigar factory paid by piecework instead of by the hour or by the day as Blymeyer spent more and more time tending to the needs of his co-workers, he had less and less time to roll cigars. And remember, powwowing was not considered to be a lucrative career, since those who truly believed in the practice viewed it as more of a charity service than a career path, and those seeking help were only asked to donate a few coins or a few goods in exchange for the service. Hmm. So, he, like, just think about it. Like, you're like a young guy who basically like his self-esteem was probably super fucking low because as we've talked about that entire culture was based around farming and he can't even work the fields he's too sick Mm -hmm. he doesn't know why he's sick he probably is feeling like you know does god like not like me like why is this (laughs) happening to me like he's got to ride his horse 20 miles round trip to roll cigars and then all of a sudden this like thing happens in his life that like unleashes this power and importance and suddenly people are viewing him differently and he's feeling better he's like feeling less sick and now he's getting married and he's having kids and he's like he doesn't want to let that go right so as he took on more powwow clients his work and wages suffered as a consequence because he's not really getting paid for this work that's elevating his status he's a clout chaser yeah i mean i think he just like finally found something that was like fucking cool as shit yeah Yeah, he's like i'm fucking dope like i have this super young hot babe that's like into me now like she doesn't even care that i'm super skinny and can't lift a bale of hay you know (laughs) soon though the stress and strain of trying to provide for his wife and three children while keeping up with his clients and his day job took a toll on the already fragile blymeyer's health he began to lose weight and his clothes began hanging off of his already skinny frame There were dark circles under his eyes from the constant headaches and lack of sleep. Arguments began to be a regular occurrence in his relationship as his wife begged him to take a step back from his powwow work. With his problems compounding at an alarming rate, Blymeyer became convinced that he must be the victim of a hex. Perhaps, he thought, somebody had grown jealous of his newfound status in the Pennsylvania Dutch community and had carried out a bit of dark magic to help bring about his downfall. First, John tried to perform his own counter-hex spells and charms, but his problems weren't getting any better and his headaches were only getting worse. Next, he sought the help of his father and grandfather, 
but even their old world magic didn't seem to be helping. His headaches transformed into full-blown migraines and he began missing work regularly. Growing more and more bitter and paranoid, John Blymeyer quit his job and began going from town to town all across Pennsylvania, visiting powwowers during an eight-year-long quest to determine the identity of the evil person who had cursed him. According to journalist Crawford Smith, this endeavor consumed what little money he had and most of his free time, leaving his wife and children to fend for themselves, primarily being supported by his father and grandfather. Relatives of John Blymeyer reported that he would sometimes hitchhike up to 80 miles away to visit powwowers he thought could help him. But each time he visited a new person, it seemed no countercurse or charm was successful, and his health continued to deteriorate. At this point, John returned to his job at the cigar factory, but every moment of his spare time was still consumed with visiting professionals in hopes of removing the hex. It was at this point in Blymeyer's life when a young man named John Curry started working in the cigar factory. Curry and Blymeyer were seated next to each other, rolling cigars on an assembly line, and the two soon became fast friends. Both had endured difficult childhoods, and both were bitter about their circumstances. Curry's father had died when he was only six years old, and when his mother remarried, it was to an abusive alcoholic who battered both Curry and his mother on a daily basis. At only 13 years old, Curry decided he had had enough and escaped to the army, lying about his age to recruiters. Unfortunately, after serving in the army for less than a year, Curry's true age was discovered and he was discharged from service, forcing him to look for other means of supporting himself. By this point, Curry was still only 13 years old, but Blymeyer, who was 32, felt drawn to him and his hard luck story, and they cultivated something of a father-son relationship, with Curry looking up to Blymeyer as the reliable parental figure he never had. As luck would have it, around this same time, someone heard the story of Blymeyer's perceived curse and referred him to a woman named Nellie Null. Nellie, better known as the River Witch of Marietta, was infamous for her magical abilities in the town of Marietta in central Pennsylvania. Unlike most powwow practitioners, Nellie also was known to dabble in the dark arts. And unlike most practitioners, Nellie also charged a fee of $5 for each powwow session and was known for telling her clients that if they wanted to see results, they would need to invest in multiple sessions with her. $5 in the late 1920s is roughly the equivalent of $86 in today's money. And for someone like Blymeyer, who was a renter, had a family to support, and was only working a part-time piece rate job, this was no small sum of money. But wanting desperately to turn his bad luck around, Blymeyer felt that he needed to see Nellie and invest in her powwow sessions. The next part of the story is a little bit murky. But apparently, after a number of these expensive sessions, Nellie told Blymeyer that she had determined that he was indeed a victim of a powerful hex. And not only that, but she knew the identity of the man who had hexed him. It is not known how she determined the name of the hexer, since opinions on Nellie vary wildly depending on who you talk to. Those who believed she was just an opportunistic scam artist think she must have done some sort of research into people Blymeyer had been in contact with over the years, while those who argue that Nellie was indeed some sort of clairvoyant say that she really did determine through her magical abilities the real person who had really cursed Blymeyer. Who was it? Whatever the case, the person she fingered for the crime was none other than Nelson Raymeyer, the very person who had cured Blymeyer of his illness as a teen. 
When John Blymeyer heard that his hexer was Nelson, he at first refused to believe it. Oh, wait, is it because of this competition? I mean, who's to say? So at first, he's like, no, there's no fucking way it's Nelson. He's a good guy. I've known him since I was a child. Like, he temporarily cured me of my ailments. And I know that he's a good man and an even better powwower because his reputation precedes him. And look at this big successful farm, right, that he's running. Like, clearly, he must be doing something right. And Nellie argued back, okay, but how do you think that he got so successful? It wasn't from doing these little powwow schemes that like you barely pay any money for it and is considered charity, right? It was through dark magic hexes that Nelson was placing on those he viewed as rivals. She told John that Nelson had been jealous of John's growing success as a powwow artist after the incident at the cigar factory where John had cured a rabid dog. Feeling like his side hustle was in danger, Nelson had then cursed John with the hex of bad luck and misfortune. Still skeptical, John insisted that Nellie must be mistaken. Not only had Nelson helped him with his sickness and his youth, but as a child, John had worked on his farm picking potatoes for the very reasonable wage of 25 cents a day. In response, Nellie answered, You don't have to take my word for it. I can prove it. She then asked John to take a $1 bill from his wallet and place it face down in the palm of his hand. Apprehensively, John obliged. Nellie then closed her eyes, muttered a few words, and waved a hand over the dollar bill. Turning her eyes to John, she explained to him that once he turned over that bill, the face would have transformed into the face of his hexer. Still not sure what to believe, John slowly lifted the bill from his palm and turned it right side up. He could hardly believe it. There, plain as day, in the middle of the bill was the face of Nelson Raymire. What? Stunned and stuttering, John dropped the bill on the floor in alarm, then picked it back up. But there was no denying it. It was Nelson's face staring straight back up at him. After a few moments of silence, John Blymire was finally able to speak. What do I do to undo this curse? He asked Nellie. I'll do anything. Okay, first of all, I want to say that I'm very much enjoying this. And so if you guys hear snacking, that's me eating snacks while I'm listening to Alyssa's story. Um, because I rubbed this uh, CBD lotion all over my body before I came here. <laughs> and to be honest, I feel kind of stoned. Uh, I know they say that CBD doesn't get you stoned, but I think that that though they were stoned when they said that. Now, here's what I'm going to say about this episode that we're recording right now. Isn't the Nelson guy, like, R- Regina, what the fuck is this lady? The, ri- the Nellie. Witch lady? Her name is Nellie, the River Witch of Marietta. Right. Isn't the River Witch's uh, competition Nelson, the guy that she's saying is the person that's hexing him? And, I, and let me guess, she's going to say you have to kill him? Well, you have a good point, because it perhaps... I mean, this could be a two birds with one stone situation, because perhaps she's viewing... John as her competition as well, and also Nelson. Um, and maybe she's also viewing, I mean, I don't know. It seems like it's kind of hard to determine like what anyone was thinking in this story because what I've been able to suss out from all of these sources is like powwow was super pervasive and you didn't need to like be anyone special to like be able to do this type of work. It was just that some people had a reputation of being more successful with their charms than others. Like anybody could read this book. It wasn't like a special book. Like the Bible was super 
uh, obviously like prevalent in this community. Um, the book, The Long Lost Friend, the Moses books, the lost books of the Bible supposedly written by Moses. Like, And there were even more books that are grimoires that are considered to be things that contain a lot of powwow spells and charms. But it was just that some people, just for whatever reason, were seemed more magical and haunted. Yeah, just like seemed to have better success. Like maybe you're just a regular ass person who's living at home and like working in a cigar factory and you're trying to like do charms to make your cigars like roll themselves faster or whatever, but it's right. just not working. Well, and I feel like customers, I mean, I, from my personal opinion, if I'm going to go to someone to have a powwow performed on me. I'm probably going to go to someone who's called, like, the River Witch of yes, Marietta. Marietta. You know, that person sounds like they're going to be a little more magical right. than Nelson. Well, and I think, yes, I agree with that. And as you were saying that, it just, like, jogged my memory. Because, like, would you rather go to a therapist that is, like, uh, sick and homeless and, like, divorced five times and, like, you know, or would you rather go to a therapist that's, like, hey, like, I have my shit together and like the advice I'm giving you is from like the hardships I already overcame. Like I'm not in the midst of my hardship right. or at the bottom, like having never right. experienced anything. I'm like past that point And I can tell you, this is what I had to do. Like, here's some real life advice right. that I've garnered. Like I would rather see that therapist. Yeah. And side story, I won't go too long, but I had to choose therapists recently. And uh, I chose a therapist who was like, he was an army medic and he had five kids and he like lived out in like you know the suburbs not out he wasn't like in LA trying to be an actor or some bullshit I chose him but there was another person that I went to one meeting with and I ended up like running out of there and never talked to them again because they were like literally oh my god it was horrible like I they lived up in like the Hollywood Hills mm. they're like come to my house whatever I went and I was like well this is really cool they like sat me down and then they were, like pushed their book on me and oh, like, oh no. go to follow my Instagram like follow my YouTube like this and, da, 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 and all the shit and I was like I have to get the fuck out of here and they were like so horrible and then I left and just never said anything back and That's I was so like fucked. I was like um why are they still fucking like texting me and having their assistants text me and all this like when do you want to make an appointment and all this and I'm like you guys I'm not ever coming back yeah no, that's super that I feel like that is illegal, but you are not the first person to tell me that like the therapists in LA are fucking cloud chasers. I know. Like, like I dated somebody once who had a therapist and that like and this person had like very real like mental health concerns and the therapist was just like, "What do you want? You want Adderall? You want Ritalin? You want <gasps> this or that?" Like, I'll give it to you, but I want you to like run an ad for my like therapy business on the platform you have. The city it just turns people to shit. Exactly. But I guess to bring this back around to the River Witch of Marietta, like she was known for being successful with her powwow. Like apparently she fucking made up the face okay, of yeah, Nelson appear in the thing. dollar bill. I want to see that dollar bill because how dumb were people in 1920? Like if I look at that bill, if you and I were to look at that bill, would I be able to see that it's like a different texture? Like, oh, right. you know, in the center where it's supposed to be Abraham Lincoln, like they had switched it out with something else. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Well, I think that's what I was also saying about like, it depends. It really depends on like which version of the story you believe. Like there are some people who are like, this bitch was a con artist. And that is evidenced by the fact that she wasn't practicing true powwow because 
because she was charging people $5 no matter what and making them come back for multiple sessions. And that was super frowned upon. Like, powwow was supposed to be, like, an act of charity and you just pay what you can. But if she could turn the dollar bill into someone's face, then I would be intrigued. See, exactly. Maybe she's worth the money and, you know. And that's the other side of the argument. The people who are like, no, like, this bitch was the real fucking deal. Like, there is a reason why her nickname was the River Witch of Marietta. Like, she had, like, it wasn't just showmanship. Like, she had fucking results. Like, people would see her because they were covered in boils and nobody could help them. And they had seen all of the doctors and they had done whatever rituals at their home. And then as a last ditch effort, they would see the River Witch and she would cure them in a matter of, like, three sessions. Yeah, I wish she was still alive because I, I want to go see her. I That's wanna... You know what? Fuck therapy. I'm going to start going to river witches. I f- if you find a river witch, tell me because I think that perhaps we should fucking film a vlog with a river witch. I would get way more out of like someone beating me with like a, a cat cattail like from a river, like doing little spells with fireflies than I do from my therapist being like... Yeah, and so just let's think about, like, what you just told me. So what you're saying is you came up with a solution on your own. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> and Sometimes stupid. it is condescending. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'd rather have someone be like, okay, your problem is that your leg's broken. Um, I'm going to slap you <laughs> across the face. With a fish. With a fish. And then you're going to go over to the nearest horse and you're going to kiss it on the nose and now your leg is cured. Like, I would like to skip the steps of self-actualization, yeah. right? Like, just give me the results. And that's what this woman was promising people. So whatever you believe, maybe this guy, John, was just like super susceptible and tricked himself in the low light of whatever candles she had lit, I'm sure, in her home. Like, maybe he just looked at the dollar bill and was like, tricked himself into thinking that what if Nelson just looked exactly like George Washington. It's po- honestly because remember how ev- wait, actually everyone looked like Abe Lincoln. Yeah, it was a five dollar. <laughs> no, it was a one dollar bill. One dollar bill was George Washington. The five dollar bill was Abe Lincoln. Okay, so it was a one dollar bill. So what did that? What if he just looked exactly like George Washington? Okay, also, I spent, like, a embarrassingly long amount of time trying to find what the $1 bill looked like in the 1920s, and I could not fucking find a, a clear answer, but I'm pretty sure it was George Washington. But I I did find that the nineteen in the 1940s, the $1 bill was, like, revised into the one we currently have, but... I don't know. I couldn't find anything showing what it looked like in the 1920s, but I'm assuming it was George Washington. Look, after I found out that the gold rush wasn't real, (laughs) were the 1920s even in America? Who knows? Did it even happen? Was this like a memory implanted in us by our alien overlords? I don't know. But the point is that whatever we think fucking happened, we don't know. The only two people were there are dead now, right? But... He really did believe that the face of George Washington on the $1 bill like morphed into, in front of his very eyes, the face of Nelson Raymeyer. And Nellie told him that there were two ways to undo this hex without causing harm to Raymeyer. The first was to gain entry to his home, find his copy of the powwow book, The Long Lost Friend, and burn it. The other way was to obtain a lock of Nelson's hair, either from a hairbrush or by cutting it off his head, and then to bury that hair six feet underground. After paying Nellie for her help and hitchhiking back home, John was absolutely determined to carry out this mission, and in fact, he became fucking obsessed with it. He was like, no matter what, this is the like root of all my problems. I need to somehow get either the book from Raymire 
or I need to get hair from Raymar and I need to fucking either burn the book or bury this hair six feet underground. And this is the only way I will ever truly be happy and fulfilled and healthy. There was only one problem though. How would he get to Hex Hollow where Nelson Raymire lived. He lives in Hex Hollow? You yes. left that part out. For oh, yeah. sure he did. No, I said that Hex. earlier. His house was known as Hex Hollow. Okay, I'm sorry, but like, of course he cast a hex if his house is called hex hollow right i mean there's a whole other rabbit hole we could go down that maybe i'll talk about at the end maybe i won't where like the sign of the hex like there was this symbol called a hex symbol that people would paint on their barns and it wasn't looked at as something bad it was just look in pennsylvania dutch culture it was like a like a a good luck symbol but it was known as the hex symbol so normally John would just hitchhike to Nelson's house or ride his horse or borrow a horse. But for this mission, he thought that he would need to be very stealthy. So what does he do? His mind immediately turns to his only friend, his 13-year-old co-worker, John Curry. Keep in mind that John is in his 30s. So he goes over to Curry and he's like, hey man, I need a ride. This is my situation. This is what the River Witch told me. Like, can you do me a solid and help me? And Curry's like, I'm 13, so I don't have my own vehicle, but I'm super sympathetic to your plight. And like, I view you as like a father figure because Curry was essentially living on his own as a child. Like he had escaped from this abusive household and really didn't have anybody in his life. And so he was like, you know what, John, you are my father, like my father figure. I don't have a car and I have no solutions about that. But I promise you that as soon as we find a ride to Hex Hollow, I will go with you on this mission so that you won't have to be alone in this very scary journey. Also sounds kind of fun. Like I could see myself, like if you came up to me and you were like, hey, I need to go and I need to get this girl's hair and we have to like bury it six feet underground. She hexed me. Yeah. Yeah. I would just be so excited of like the idea of having an adventure with my friend that I would be like, oh my God, life is a movie. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. John Blymeyer and John Curry put their heads together and they're like, who can we think of that might have a car and like might be a little crazy and like might be on board with this plan and like who can we trust to not just go up to Nelson Raymeyer who's super respected in the community and be like hey uh John Blymeyer and his 13 year old friend are like gonna try to steal your hair and your spell book right so they stay up late at night they're not getting much sleep they're trying to figure out alternate ways to safely get to and from Hex Hollow undetected and finally John Blymeyer remembers another family living in his community the Hess family. And according to journalist Crawford Smith, Wilbert Hess, who was the son in the Hess family, was just 17 years old when he first met John Blymeyer. Hess had been raised on a once prosperous farm outside of York. Around the middle of 1926, things began to go wrong on the Hess farm. Crops failed inexplicably, chickens quit laying eggs, and the cows ceased giving milk. The Hess family immediately knew what the problem was. They must have been hexed. Like Blymeyer, they struggled in vain to identify the source. By the middle of 1928, Wilbert's father, Milton, had been forced to sell most of his land. To make ends meet, father and son went to work driving trucks for the Pennsylvania Tool Company in downtown York. The garage of the company was located directly across the alley from the rooming house where John Blymeyer lived. Blymeyer and Wilbert Hess struck up a relationship, and before long, young Hess had confided in Blymeyer about his family's troubles. 
So under the guise of generosity, Blymeyer offers to apply his powwowing talents to identify who has cursed the Hess family. But after like trying really hard to like identify who is at the source of the Hess family's curse, he ends up saying, you know what? I really don't think I'm strong enough to help you, but I know someone who can. And he ends up suggesting to the family that they pay a visit to Nellie the River Witch. Once at her home, Nellie wasted no time in revealing that the entire Hess clan had also been cursed by none other than Nelson Raymeyer. And so then this leads everyone to be like, holy shit, like, what are the odds? Like, Nelson has cursed not only John Blymeyer, but also our entire family, like the entire Hess family. And as we had learned at the beginning of this, like these families that immigrated from Germany were super vulnerable because if their farm didn't pan out, they were just left destitute with nothing, right? Right. And actually, that wow, this ties into the beginning, the intro, because let's leads us to believe like how this family of farmers must have been feeling when they lost their house, their land, their entire vocation, and now they're forced to drive these trucks. And like that's not something they want to do. Like that's not something they've ever even thought about doing ever in their life. They've lost pretty much everything. Everything. And now this river witch is telling them that the exact same man that cursed their friend also cursed them. So they start to wonder, like, maybe we're not the only ones. Maybe every single family in this community that's ever lost their farm or ever lost a crop or ever lost their livestock has also been cursed by this man who's super successful and has been quote unquote, pretending to like be giving us charms over the years, right? Because everyone was going to him when they would have a lost crop or um, like a death in the family or an unsuccessful harvest that year. And he seems to be prospering. So they start to make these connections where depending on what you believe, maybe there were no connections to be made or maybe there were connections to be made. And they decide that Raymire, Nelson Raymeyer must be evil and must actually be cursing everyone that he's pretending to help. Or maybe he's like helping them sometimes, like just enough to encourage them to come back, but then hexing them so that his farm does better. So this revelation was exactly what Blymeyer needed the Hesses to come to, since as we said earlier, the Hesses had a car. So Wilbert Hess's father and mother immediately agreed to let their 17-year-old son accompany Blymeyer and Curry on their mission to de-hex as many families in their community as possible. Now all they needed was a reliable plan. So the two boys and John Blymeyer put their heads together and came up with the plan. First, they would scope out Hex Hollow and determine when the right time to strike would be. Once they finished this reconnaissance, they would gain entry to Nelson's home under the guise of needing some simple powwow help from him. Then, once they had gained access to the house, they would make up an excuse to use the bathroom or go to another room and really search for the book Nellie the River Witch had said to look for. And then if that failed, another member of the trio would make up an excuse and say, oh, I need to use the bathroom or whatever. And instead of trying to find the book, they would try to find Nelson's hairbrush to take a lock of hair from. And if all of that failed, their last resort would be to attempt to overpower Nelson. But that was going to be last resort because it was not going to be easy. Nelson was a big fucking dude. He was like hardy and sturdy. He was described as being over six feet tall. He did a lot of manual labor um, and he was over 250 pounds. Oh, yikes. He's a big guy, especially for that time. Yeah. And think about John Blymeyer, who's only been described as like sickly and thin, trying to go up against this giant farmer 
with a 13-year-old and a 17-year-old. Right, like the other dude can barely roll a cigar. Right, exactly. But the 17-year-old was actually super buff. Apparently, I read that like 20 times, so... He's 17, calm down. Yeah, but apparently he was fucking buff. Everyone was pointing it out in all the publications. So it was decided that the night of the reconnaissance would happen on November 26th. And it was decided that only Curry and Blymeyer would go for this reconnaissance. And then later they would come back with the much larger Wilbert Hess if all else failed. So Curry and Blymeyer arrive at Hex Hollow in the evening. And to their surprise and delight, they realized that Nelson was now living alone. It seemed that his wife and children had actually moved out into a separate house down the street. Nobody seemed to know why, but upon realizing that Nelson was now living alone, for some reason Curry and Blymeyer thought it would be a good idea to first visit with Nelson's wife and children in their home down the street under the pretense of looking for Nelson. After this visit, they next stopped by Nelson Raymeyer's house, pretending to just want to catch up after not seeing Nelson for many years. Nelson seemed very happy to see John Blymeyer and greeted him enthusiastically at the door, offering the duo some tea and some food. They talked well into the evening, catching up on community gossip and making small talk. And finally, it got really late and Nelson announced that he would be retiring to bed for the evening and being super gentlemanly and accommodating, asked Blymeyer if he and his friend would like to spend the night in the guest room. Here was the perfect opportunity to snoop around once Nelson fell asleep. So John quickly agreed and soon Nelson went to sleep in his room. But for another unknown reason that nobody seems to know, Curry and Blymeyer actually end up chickening out at this perfect opportunity and end up being too scared to look around the house. So instead, they just go to sleep in the guest room and leave the next morning with nothing. Returning to the Hess farmstead, Blymeyer and Curry discussed what they had found out that Nelson now lived alone and that he would be home again the next evening. Motivated, Wilbert Hess proposed enthusiastically that the three of the men should just return that evening and try again. So on November 27th, John Blymeyer, John Curry, and Wilbert Hess got into the Hess family vehicle driven by Wilbert's brother Clayton and began their journey to Nelson Raymeyer's house in Hex Hollow once again. He's gonna be so weirded out. Like these people just show up two yeah. days in a row I, after they like slept in your guest room. Right, especially because he hadn't even seen John Blymeyer since he was a child working on the potato farm, right? Like he had allegedly like temporarily cured him of his illness as a teen and then just like never seen him again. Yeah, and it sounds like he was just being polite by saying, oh, you know, I'm going to go to bed now. Like, I'll see you guys later. But right. then he's also like, oh, I guess I have a, a guest room if you guys want to go to sleep. But he's probably expecting them to be like, oh, no, we'll be on our way. And they're like, sure. They're like, yes, that sounds reasonable. I, a 30-something-year-old man, will spend the night in the guest room with a 13-year-old boy I met in a cigar rolling factory. <laughs> and this is not weird at all, even though I haven't seen you in like 10, 15 years. Yeah, very bizarre. But it kind of just speaks to how like hospitable people in this community were to each other. So they go on this journey and Wilbert's brother is driving the family car and his name is Clayton. And Clayton ends up dropping the crew off about a mile away from Nelson's home so that no neighbors would later be able to identify any vehicle. The group hiked and crept through the thick Pennsylvania woods in complete silence as dusk slowly fell around them. Walking up to the front door together, Blymeyer knocked. The door slowly creaked open and Nelson appeared in the doorway. 
Trying to be polite, but clearly surprised that Curry and Blymeyer were back and this time with a new boy he didn't even know, Nelson asked if they needed anything. The crew immediately pushed past Nelson, ran into his home, and shut and locked the door behind them. Blymeyer began hounding Nelson, yelling, Where is your book? We need your book! Oh my god. <laughs> just proving him right that they're just fucking weirdos. Yeah, this is fucking Albus Dumb- Dumbledore vibes when he's yelling at Harry like, Harry, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? And it just like comes out of nowhere in right. the movie and you're like, this wasn't in the book. Like, why is this I know <laughs> why exactly. Is this happening? I know exactly what you're talking about. So this is exactly the vibes that are happening right now. And Nelson is confused because he's genuinely, it seemed like he didn't know what they were talking about. And he's like, I don't, what book? Like, what are you talking about? You need a book? Like, I have books, but like, what are you talking about? And Blymeyer, rather than like explain himself, just keeps yelling. Cause I think, cause he probably had a lot of adrenaline pumping and he was like, don't try to play dumb. And then he even threatens Nelson and says, we know you have the book. And if you don't give it to us, things are going to get real ugly real fast. Author Crawford Smith writes the following about what happened next. Quote, Curry had brought along a number of lengths of pre-cut rope to tie up Raymire. They attempted to restrain him tying the ropes around his arms and legs, but Raymeyer, perhaps realizing that he was in more danger than originally anticipated, put up a ferocious fight. Blymeyer took one of the lengths of rope and cinched it around Raymeyer's neck. The intention was to subdue Nelson before snipping a lock of his hair and making their escape. Unfortunately, however, even with a constricted airway, Raymeyer continued to fight back against his attackers. Finally, John Curry ran outside to the woodpile and returned with a large log. With this, he repeatedly battered the struggling Raymire, pounding the length of wood into his head and face as Blymire and Hess continued to strangle and kick the struggling powwower. At last, the audible crack of a skull breaking was heard and Raymire's body went limp. His battered, bloody body, face almost unrecognizable, was motionless on the floor of his parlor. Blymeyer leaned in, holding his breath and placing his hand against Raymire's mouth. But much to the group's horror, somehow Raymire was still breathing. How was it possible? John wondered aloud. Panicking now, the group debated what to do. They end up deciding to take another length of rope and wrap it around Raymire's neck to suffocate him to death with. What? Why are they going to kill him now? I, that's, we can debate this at the end, but that is what a lot of people wonder, like, were they really just going there to get a lock of his hair? Or were they going there with the intent to kill him in the first place? Yeah, now I'm kind of thinking it sounds like they were just trying to cover their ass by being like, well, we only intended to do this and this. It sounds like they were trying to kill him. Yeah, I mean, they went there with ropes. Like, why not just go in? Like, this guy seems pretty nice. Why not just go in and be like, here's the deal. River Witch said you curse me. Might be true, might not be true. Who am I to say? But can you just give me a lock of your hair that I can bury six feet under because that would, like, help me feel better and maybe placebo effect would cause me to feel, like, less shitty. I feel like he might have agreed. Yeah, he might have been. But that they didn't do that. Instead, they beat him on the head with a log and tie him up. And then when that doesn't kill him, they decide to wrap another rope around his neck and just start strangling him. So after several tense minutes of the men all yanking on the rope as hard as they can, Raymire finally stopped breathing. Allegedly, at this point, John Blymire then looked upon his handiwork and cried, Thank God, the witch is dead. 
With Raymire dead, there was no longer any reason to even continue to look for the book or to retrieve a lock of hair, since, according to Pennsylvania Dutch tradition, the hex would die when the witch who cast it died. A quick search of the house turned up only a small tin box full of pennies, which they decided to split. So not only do they kill him, but they decide to rob him as well. In a half-hearted attempt to conceal their crime, they ended up taking a water dipper and taking some water out of a bucket that was inside Raymire's house and sloshing the water all around the floor because they thought it would like wash up fingerprints just in case anybody came to the house to like and like found him dead there. But then they also are like, you know what? We're thinking about it. That's pretty stupid. Probably not gonna be enough to like get us out of this. So they also took the cushions from Raymire's couch propped them up over his body, like completely covering it. And then they doused both the body. I was going to say, yeah, set the house on fire. So they doused both the body and the couch cushions completely in kerosene. And then as they're looking at it, they're like, no, that's not even good enough. So they decide they're going to douse the entire house in kerosene too. So they go from room to room. They're dousing everything in kerosene. And then they all go to the front door and throw a match, a lit match at Raymire's body before running from the house and then that's still not good enough they're like no we want to like watch this shit burn and they decided that they're going to take shelter in the woods at the edge of the woods right by Raymire's house and watch the house burn down and they do see the flames are leaping higher and higher they start to consume the house there's ash there's crackling there's it's like very dramatic right right and so they're like okay it worked right and they're like fuck thank god like this whole fucking nightmare is finally over none of us are going to be cursed anymore we're all gonna I guess, live a great life and all their problems are solved. But then to their shock and horror. He gets up on fire and gets out of the house. Are you kidding? He seriously did? As the flames leap higher and higher around the house, they begin to see something through the window. There, looking out of the glass window with flames all around and on him was Nelson Raymire, consumed in flames, looking out at them calmly from the front window. He was a witch. He wasn't trying to escape. He wasn't trying to put out the fire. He was just standing there, staring at them. The terrifying image caused the crew to turn tail and run, screaming through the forest back to the car where Clayton was waiting to drive them away. For two days after the incident, the boys heard nothing, and they assumed that it would only be a matter of time before the burned down ashes of Nelson's house were seen either by his wife or a mail courier or a neighbor. On the morning of November 30th, Nelson's neighbor Oscar Glatfelter stopped by the farm to check on Nelson after finding Nelson's unfed mule wandering along the property line in distress. However, rather than finding a burned down house, Glatfelter walked up to an intact hex hollow, completely untouched and unharmed. What? It didn't burn? Not at, at all? all. Nothing on it burned. In fact, Oscar may have never even known that anything was wrong if he hadn't gone the extra mile to walk up to the porch and look through the window. But he did look through the window and what he saw caused him to immediately alert the police. When the police arrived, they found the blackened and charred body of Nelson Raymire, but nothing inside the house apart from his body showed any signs of a fire. What? So it's like he just fucking spontaneously combusted and nothing else in the house was touched. Windows weren't burned, like nothing, wallpaper wasn't peeling, like everything's okay, fucking intact. someone who understands powwow or witchcraft or whatever the fuck you want to call it 
What happened? Tell what us. What happened here? So then the next thing that happened, according to journalist Crawford Smith, was, quote, Blymeyer, Curry, and Hess were apprehended so quickly that the news of their arrest was in the same edition of the paper as the news of Raymeyer's death, because Blymeyer had made it no secret of his intention to confront Raymeyer and had actually stopped by Raymeyer's wife's house the night before the murder to ask where her husband was. Remember that? Yeah, that's true. And everyone's like, in hindsight, like, why the fuck did he do that? That's so stupid. And because of that, as soon as she finds out her husband died, she immediately says to the cops, like, well, I know that John fucking Blymeyer was being sketchy as shit, dragging around a 13-year-old boy the night before my husband died, asking where he was. And so all three were immediately in custody by sundown of the same day that Raymeyer's body was found. The men readily confessed to the murder during interrogation sessions that lasted all night. Blymeyer even seemed relieved that he had been caught and that the hex had been lifted, and he wasn't concerned at all about the legal repercussions of his actions. News of the murder, and especially its motive, quickly began to spread. Out-of-state newspapers began to sensationalize the story of the more modern-day quote-unquote witchcraft murder in rural Pennsylvania. To the consternation of the civic and business leaders of York County, reporters and photographers poured into York and began filing unflattering stories about the backwards beliefs of the quote-unquote dumb Dutchman of the area. Okay, first of all, we'll not have this uh, Dutchman slaughter because, as we know, the lost Dutchman was a Dutchman, so... Also, how stupid are these journalists? They don't even know that the Pennsylvania Dutch aren't Dutchmen. Yeah. They're German. And they have treasure. And they're totally disrespecting the religious practices of powwow, right? And so everyone in the community is like, God damn it. Like, why did stupid fucking sickly John Blymeyer have to go murder someone? And now this is giving a bad name, not only to our culture and our town, but the entire county, the entire like demographic of people who practice powwow. And now people are starting to feel ashamed that they practice powwow. Okay, I don't give a fuck about any of that. What I care about is who saw the guy on fire staring at them through the window? Did that come from Blymeyer's testimony? All three. All three of the guys. Blymeyer, Hess, and Curry all say that this happened. Okay, so either they're lying or that really happened. Yeah. Why would they lie? Maybe to make it make it seem like, oh, we really were scared of this person? Yeah, like, I don't know. I don't know. But that's not but a great would, legal defense, right? right? But how would they also make it so that only the body was charred and that's nothing else was? Yeah. Unless their defense lies in magic being real, right? Yeah. Because if magic is Maybe. real and the guy put a hex on them then that's like, you know, p putting a gun to somebody's head, right? Right. So maybe, yeah, maybe that's their defense is like, hey, uh, magic is real. And this guy <laughs> was shooting us with a magic gun. Yeah. Uh, and just because you can't see it doesn't mean it didn't happen. It didn't happen. I mean, who knows? So now we hit part four, the trial. Crawford Smith goes on to write of the trial saying, quote, Blymeyer's case went to trial first. As a pauper, he was assigned an inexperienced public defender named Herbert Cohen. The lawyer's job was made much more difficult by the district attorney, Amos Herman, and the judge, Roy Sherwood. Herman and Sherwood represented the old guard of York and did not want any further besmirchment of the town in the worldwide press. To that end, Herman and Sherwood labored to preclude any mention of witchcraft or powwowing during the trial. 
the confessions that were submitted to the court were severely edited. Statements that had been freely given over the course of eight hours were reduced to a few paragraphs, and they struck any mention of powwowing, the witch, hexes, or magic. Because they thought it was, like, ridiculous? They thought it was bad press. Oh. They were like, okay, the whole world is seeing us as a fucking joke. Nobody's going to want to fucking do business in York County. No one's going to want to visit. Everyone's going to be scared of us. This is now giving Pennsylvania Dutch people a bad name. It's giving powwowers a bad name. We want to, like, downplay this as much as possible and be like, there was no magic at all. This is just a simple case of murder. Lock them up, throw away the I would way rather have a murder. Uh, I, I mean, I would way rather have... Uh, magic attached to me than just murderer, you know? Oh, yeah. No, this is terrible for the guys that are on trial. Now it just looks like for no fucking reason they showed up to some guy's house that was like an upstanding member of society with a successful farm and just murdered him for no reason. Like, the not that there is any justification, but like the justification they had in their minds now doesn't even make any sense because they're not allowed to talk about the river witch, yeah. not allowed to talk about hexes, powwow, charms, curses, anything like that. So, as far as the state was concerned, the motive for the murder was the small box of pennies that the three had taken from Remmer's house before trying to burn it down. And they would not hear any other motive in court. So, the guys that stood trial weren't even allowed to argue. No, the motive wasn't robbery. It was witchcraft. Well, that's not a fair trial at all. I mean, I agree. And it soon became evident that the only thing in question in the trial was whether or not John Blymeyer would be sent to the electric chair. And he didn't have to wait long to find out because the trial only lasted three days. The jury deliberated less than two hours and they returned a guilty verdict of murder in the first degree with a life sentence. Now, John's attorney was pretty fucking pissed because he was like, this isn't fair. Just like you're saying, this is not a fair trial. My client's not getting a fair trial. You guys rushed this because you wanted to squash it and get it over with and get it out of the press. And you're completely missing these like very real mitigating circumstances that whether or not you think they're bullshit, my client really believed. So we should be allowed to like have an appeal. We should be allowed to overturn this. We should be allowed to have a new trial. Like this is bullshit. But John Blymeyer is like, no, I don't want a new trial. And he ends up saying, I am happy now. I am not bewitched anymore. I can sleep. And now I am no longer pining away. You can just imagine like how pissed his lawyer is. Like now the lawyer's like, well, now there's like no argument left because you're saying that, that you're chill with it. Yeah, that lawyer was just like, fuck my life. I'm a public defender. Fuck this. Exactly. <laughs> I'm like trying to make a name for myself. And I'm like my first case or whatever is right. like defending this client. It this was super clown. difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So then next up to be tried was John Curry. And the proceedings for him went even more quickly. The defense rested on the afternoon of the first day of the trial. And when the jury returned the next morning, they again required less than two hours to reach a verdict, which was, of course, guilty of murder in the first degree, life sentence. And Curry, who really had no beef with this guy and was just a 13-year-old along for the ride, like, thinking he was supporting his father figure, was super fucking confused like didn't even fully understand he couldn't even really process what had happened to him i mean he was so young and this trial took less than a day and then by the next morning all of a sudden he's in jail for life so he was obviously super devastated and as he was being led away from the courtroom jury selection had already started for the trial of wilbert hess because like i said the county was like let's get this fucking over with like a speedy right to a speedy trial let's take that super literally we're gonna get this done and over with within a week so unlike the other two defendants, Hess actually 
had a little bit of money in his family still because like we talked about the Hess family was like pretty big pretty well established in the area and even though they had lost their farm they still had some relatives in the area that like were willing to pool their money and resources so he was the only one to not have a public defender and his family hired attorney Harvey Gross an eminent York County criminal defense attorney and this is how the journalist I've been quoting describes him short squat and pugnacious Gross was known as the bulldog. Yeah, that's not... I mean, I'm, I'm picturing a person that looks like a bulldog. Yeah, well, apparently, like, he embraced that description and was like, yeah, I'm the fucking bulldog. Yeah, I'm ugly and look like a dog. But guess what? I will also fight like a dog to the death for my clients. Roo-roo, motherfucker. Exactly. And so, like, he was, like fucking capitalizing on this unfortunate description and was like i am the bulldog i will fight for you and people were hiring him all the time and people were pumped and hess's family was pumped to have him on their team and his last name is gross which also sucks so <laughs> so gross didn't have any more material to work with than blymeyer and curry's attorneys but he knew how to work a jury because he wasn't new to this shit he's right. been around the block so first he had Wilbert Hess go through this confession line by line. And basically the confession, like we already talked about, is cut down to only a few paragraphs. So he has his client go line by line through this. And then he starts, you know, ask, asking about the various statements. And he's able to demonstrate to the jury that the written confession that was allowed at trial was full of errors and contradictions and shit that didn't even make sense chronologically because the district attorney had struck so many things from it, right? Right. So it's like the confession essentially is like, and then we went to, and then like the part about the witch is cut out. So the right. And so they're going through it line by line. And this bulldog attorney is like, look, none of this fucking makes sense. Clearly, like my client doesn't even know what the fuck he's talking about. Like this can't this doesn't even make sense logically or chronologically. And then he parades a series of character witnesses across the stage to talk about how like dope of a dude Wilbert Hess is. And basically like a, like 30 people show up for this and they're one by one talking about how like no, Wilbert Hess comes from a good family. He was just down on his luck. He must have been hoodwinked, bamboozled, like taken in by some sort of charlatan to convince him that this was necessary. And they totally avoid talking about the like witchcraft part by doing that, by just implying that he must have been in some way like taken under because he's only 17 years old. Like he must have just some way been like manipulated into attending this thing. And since his confession makes no sense, we don't even know for sure that he even did anything to this guy. Maybe he was just standing there and while everyone else did the crazy fucked up shit, right? So finally he does this 80 minute closing statement, this attorney, and apparently this statement was spellbinding as people say which leads to another theory mm. was this man himself a powwower oh wow who was perhaps using his words to sway the jury i don't right. know but he urges members of the jury not to sacrifice justice in order to spare the reputation of the town quote yet in truth york does not have to be vindicated it does not have to draw the last drop of blood from the heart of a boy to save a good name that has stood for generations. And the jury deliberated for a little over two hours before returning a verdict of murder in the second degree. Basically, the attorney's like, fuck yeah, I fucking, congratulations to me. Like, oh, like suck my dick. I did it. Look <laughs> at me. I did the best out of everybody. Right. And he even shakes each juror's hand as they left the jury box. Right. 
and Judge Sherwood passed sentence on all three men shortly thereafter. Blymeyer and Curry were given life imprisonment, while Hess only received 10 to 20 years, which still fucking sucks because, again, he was a minor, but that's way better than life in prison. Right. The entire process from, like, start to finish of these three guys took a total of nine days for three fucking trials. Of murder. Of murder. For yeah. murder, for like jury selection, for everything. Wow. So the national press was critical of the sentences, particularly that of John Curry, because John Curry was only fucking, he was 14 by this point. And so um, a columnist who was super popular at the time named Will Rogers wrote, quote, a Pennsylvania jury sentenced a 14-year-old boy to life imprisonment because he believed in witchcraft. That's all he'd ever been raised up to. It's like sentencing one of our children for acting according to their religious beliefs. No doubt about there being witches in that county. The jury's verdict shows that plainer than the boy's deed, which is kind of a baller statement. Like, this guy is basically like, look at this backwards town. They thought that by doing this, we would stop writing about their witchcraft, but actually they've turned themselves into the witches. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they murdered someone, so, like, they should definitely be punished for that, but I don't like how they did the trial. Especially for Curry, who's, like, a pretty sympathetic person, because he has, his dad died when he was six. Mm -hmm. His mom remarries an an abuser. Um, The abuser's, like, an alcoholic and, like, regularly batters his mom and him in the home. So then Curry escapes tries to enlist in the army but then they find out that he's only 13 so they kick him out and then he's just fucking on his own homeless and eventually finds employment at this cigar factory and ends up his only friend is this 30 something year old man who believes really wholeheartedly in witchcraft so i think he was like a sympathetic person and yeah the jury definitely should have heard all of the facts so then all of them were sent to eastern state penitentiary And there, they actually become model prisoners. And Curry and Hess actually would end up being paroled after only 10 years, which, again, is a win. Because basically people start realizing, like, these were two underage boys. Yes, they need to be punished, like you said. 10 years, probably sufficient for being hoodwinked by this guy. So they go back to York County. They become successful. They become respected members of the community. And actually, Curry kind of finds his calling, which is kind of heartwarming. And he becomes like a pretty famous painter. This is the guy that had no family and like... Yeah. yeah, he becomes a pretty famous painter and people hire him to like paint portraits in the area. Oh, how nice. Yeah, so that's like a good uh, constructive turnaround, right? Yeah, character arc. Yeah. John Blymeyer, on the other hand, continues obviously to spend a ton of time in prison. He ends up getting new legal representation. They keep trying to overturn this verdict because it's not a fair trial. The whole story wasn't told. But members of the Raymeyer family that are still alive keep showing up to these hearings and they're testifying like, hey, our feelings need to be taken into consideration too. Like, this guy murdered a member of our family for no fucking reason based on a false belief that he was cursed. And we don't feel safe with Blymeyer returning to the community. Right. And this works. All of the appeals keep successfully getting shot down. But then in early 1953, Governor John S. Fine of Pennsylvania ends up commuting Blymeyer's sentence after he had served 24 years. And Blymeyer gets out of jail. So he thought at the beginning of his sentence, like, I'm going to have to be spending the rest of my life here in this jail. And he was like, chill with it. He was fine with it. But he ends up actually not being chill with it after he sees all the abuse that's going on in this prison. And his lawyer, he gets a new lawyer who appeals to the governor. And the governor's like, I am so fucking sick of this always being in the news about like, this is what York County's known for. This is what our state is known for. I'm just going to commute his sentence so that I, I don't have to hear about this anymore. 
And Blymeyer ends up living in the Philadelphia area where he worked as a janitor in an apartment building. He really doesn't go back to York County at all, which was probably smart. So he got out. He got out. Yeah. He got out eventually. And his wife, I was looking on Ancestry.com um, about his life, and he ended, his wife divorced him while he was in jail. He never got to go see his children ever again. So mm. he spent 24 years behind bars and also lost his family and couldn't go back yeah, home. Yeah, well, it sounds like from what you were saying, though, he kind of lost his family before that happened. Like, he became That's obsessed true. with this, like, hex thing. And when he was doing the powwow thing, too, he, like was more into being a powwow artist than he was into being a partner or a father. No, you're right. Yeah. So, I mean, he wasn't that great of a guy by all accounts, even before this thing happened. But I guess we have no way of knowing like how deeply he was indoctrinated by this belief. But today, the interesting thing is that Hex Hollow still stands. Even today, you can go visit it today. It is still located in the same sparsely populated, densely wooded land. The house? Yes, the house. Wow. But it's not called Hex Hollow anymore. It's just known as the Raymeyer's house, and it's in a town called Spring Valley County Park. And it's still owned by descendants of the Raymeyer family. And sometimes, like, as this has been passed down through generations, sometimes people will live there temporarily or, like, you know, they're between leases or whatever. And, like, oh, well, let's you know, go live in a house where someone was tortured and murdered. Yeah, no problem at all. And from time to time, they even give public tours. Now, here is the final part of this story part five the hauntings. According to the website phillyghosts.com, quote, Today, the home sits in a hollow, known as Hex Hollow, but vacant. Descendants of Nelson Raymeyer and its new owners have been trying to turn the house into a museum to display Nelson's life and his murder. The home is said by locals to be haunted and is still furnished with many of Raymeyer's original belongings. Is there like a charred piece of the wood where the body was? A portion of the kitchen floor has even been covered over the glass where the scorched floorboards beneath it are thought to be the only area where there is remnants of the fire. Oh, wow. Accounts from local residents tell of shadowy figures lurking around the property when no one is there. Others state that if you throw pebbles at the home, the home will throw them back at you. Disembodied voices have also been recorded in the forest surrounding the home, and a black dog with red eyes, a symbol of death, has been spotted roaming the property on more than one occasion. This home remembers the tragedy that occurred there, and many people believe that the house itself is cursed, which is why it refused to burn down despite its very flammable construction materials. And... This is now turned into something sort of similar to that Blue Ridge Witch story I told, where, like, kids in the area do this thing. Have you ever heard of the term legend tripping? No. Isn't that kind of a dope term, though? Um, apparently, it just means, like, when there's an urban legend in a town and people will kind of take this nighttime pilgrimage there as, oh. like, a rite of passage. Like a road trip, but a legend yeah. trip. Love that. Love it. And so kids will go legend tripping at this house, especially around Halloween, and apparently lots of kids have seen the charred on fire ghost of Nelson Raymeyer staring at them from the window late at night. That's amazing. But what's also amazing is le legend tripping. And I'm writing that on our whiteboard. <laughs> then my very, very, very last thing I wanted to say before I read my sources is I had a section called random rabbit holes where I was just going to put all the rabbit holes I found. But there was actually only one thing I really wanted to talk about, which is why I made this entire section. The penitentiary where all three of these guys were imprisoned at eventually was shut down 
because its practices were archaic and thought to be cruel. Yeah, church jail. Yeah, and everyone was like, why is there a church jail? This makes no sense. Like, why is there a hole in the ground where you just throw people for two weeks at a time with like very little food? It was shut down. It's haunted. You can, there's so many legends about different hauntings. So you can take tours there. They have Halloween tours. And apparently you can see like ghost cats because apparently there were a lot of stray cats that were just drawn to that area mm. mysteriously. But it's also thought to be haunted by the ghosts of the prisoners that died there. There were a lot of people that like lost their tongues as we talked about in yeah, the intro and like out. were just fucking mutilated at this prison. It's pretty horrific. But here's something interesting. In 1924, Pennsylvania Governor Gifford Pinchot allegedly sentenced Pep the cat murdering dog, an actual dog, to a life sentence in Eastern State. Pep allegedly murdered the governor's wife's cherished cat, and prison records reflect that Pep was assigned an inmate number, number 2559, which is seen in the dog's mugshot. However, the reason for Pep's incarceration remains a subject of some debate, and a contemporary news article reported that the governor donated his own dog to the prison to increase inmate morale. Yeah, I was just about to say, like, the best thing that could happen when you're in prison is a dog comes to prison. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess. Like, and the dog doesn't give a fuck. Like, he's just happy to be around all those people, you know? Like, right. he's not thinking about, like, oh, like, I'll never go on grass again. Right, yeah. He's just like, wow, everyone wants to pet me. That's a great point. Dogs are pretty affable creatures, but how fucking haunted is it that a governor sentenced a dog to a yeah, life sentence I mean, in a prison? It, it's, like, it seems kind of like a publicity stunt or something like that, but why would you want a prison to be like your publicity stunt. Yeah. I don't know. It's just a weird, it's a weird flex. Yeah, this prison was odd because I mean, they even like gave tours to the public. It was like a novelty, like come speak to the prisoners in the hole as they like are tortured. <laughs> like yeah, what, a, what a up. weird thing. Um, anyway, so now I'm going to read my sources. Sources for this episode include all sources that were already mentioned during the episode, plus an article entitled The Hex House posted by blogger in phillyghosts.com, Ancestry.com's family tree on John Henry Blymeyer, historygoesbump.blogspot.com, outaway.blogspot.com, article on the River Witch of Marietta, Pennsylvania, a Facebook post published to Haunted Pennsylvania, www.themariettatraveler.com, article on the Hex Hollow movie, www.themariettatraveler.com um, images uploaded to that website on Nelson Raymeyer, Wilbert Hess, and John Curry, U.S. Find a Grave Index, Wikipedia articles on Hallam, Pennsylvania, and Hex Hollow, archive.org's book on the history of York County, Pennsylvania from the earliest time to present, edited by John Gibson, www.yorkpa.org, Wikipedia article on powwows, the Wikipedia article on the sixth and seventh books of Moses, a book by Don Yoder entitled The Saints Legend in the Pennsylvania German Folk Culture, etymoonline.com forward slash word forward slash powwow, perpetualadventure.blog, an article entitled Raymeyer's Hollow, the York Hex Slayers, an article published to thelineup.com by Oren Gray entitled Dark Magic, the 1928 Hex Hollow Murder of Nelson Raymeyer, easternstate.org, the Wikipedia article on William Penn, and an article written by Crawford Smith for Crime Reads, and the YouTube channel entitled Rob Chapman, 
a powwow practitioner. So Natalia, what are your final thoughts on this story? Because this is still a very controversial story. Like some people think that witchcraft was really involved. Other people say it wasn't. I mean, these are my personal thoughts. Um, I think it's stupid that, that they care so much about it being called witchcraft. Like it's like, who gives a fuck? The only reason that they care about it being called witchcraft are because they're, like, super Christian and think witchcraft is bad, right? Murdering someone because they put a hex on you. Like, on one, the one hand, it's like, they put a hex on you. You gotta murder them, maybe, you know? But on the other hand, it's like, no, you don't have to murder them because hexes aren't real. But can you take the chance? Who knows? Also, you should have just snipped off a piece of hair or wrote a letter and been like, hey, guess what? I'm gonna murder you if you don't send me back a piece of hair. Like, you should try... Everything in your power not to murder someone because I don't think murder is ever the answer. Right. Unless they're going to murder you, then that's self-defense. I can't fault someone for that. But I mean, yeah. But is I- it self-defense? Like if I was their attorney, would I argue that this murder was actually self-defense? Well, that I think is the controversial. I mean, there's a lot of controversy in this story, but I think it really boils down to like, do you believe they were hexed or not? If you believe they were hexed, then no amount of reasoning with this guy is going to result in him giving you the power to unhex, right? So maybe they were thinking, well, we can't just ask for hair because even if he gives it to us because he's pretending like he didn't hex us, right. what's stopping him from just hexing us again? Yeah. So, okay, so then saying. that starts the argument of like, did they even go in there with the intention of getting hair or a book? Right. Or did they already go in there knowing they were going to have to murder him? Because nothing was stopping him from just redoing the hex later if he ever found out it had been undone. Yeah. I don't know. I think, too, they probably thought he had a lot more money than he did in that, like, little penny box or whatever. Because yeah. they were like, oh, he's such a successful farmer. And, you know, the river witch told me that he was, like, a billionaire and that, like, I deserve this and da 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 you know who really wins in this story? The River Witch. Oh, yeah. She never went to jail. And because... She basically just had people murder someone for her. Yes. And so, so that's the other aspect of the story. And because the uh, state was so worried about this being misconstrued they as like witchcraft... They didn't even try her for no. like uh, accessory. Well, and they didn't even bring her in to testify about whether or not she really said that. Now, members of the public later would talk to her and be like, did you really tell them that? Like, And she said no. That she had never told them to like murder anyone. That that oh, was like their own idea. Of course. But this also spawned like a series of later quote unquote powwow trials where anybody who was like seen publicly doing powwow in any way that could result in a crime was like tried and put away in jail because they just didn't want this to ever be out there. And so there's one story that I didn't write down and I don't remember the names of anyone involved, but it was something like a, somebody was performing powwow for a lady and to like help get rid of her eczema. But then later she like turned up dead and apparently she had like some spells in her pockets, like she had written down some spells. So then they traced it back to this powwow practitioner and the practitioner was like, no, that's totally unrelated to me. I was just giving her like treatment for her eczema i have no fucking clue how she ended up dead whatever and then they still put that person in jail for murder anyway well here's what i have to say about that you can't have eczema if you're dead what came first the eczema or the hexema yeah 
Exactly. I don't, you know, this is an interesting story. It presents a lot of talking points. This would be like the kind of story that you would read about uh, in your AP US history class and have to write a document based question essay. Yeah, which brings up another great point that we keep saying why is none of this taught in history? It's way more interesting than everything else. Like, we were taught about William Penn, right? Because he right. like came and like whatever, and the Quakers and everything. But why didn't we learn about? how also there's this idea that charms come from Jesus Christ and you can also turn water to wine or, you know, cure eczema. Like, why was that not taught? That's way more interesting. I would have retained the information about William Penn if that had been taught to me. Mr. Wiley definitely mentioned (laughs) powwows before, but I just like... I, it had been such a long time that I didn't. Oh, see, your think teacher was better then. Yeah, but he got fired, so he was a crazy fucking radical dude. Now he didn't tell me this particular story, which I feel like was basically censorship. So now <laughs> I don't think he's that cool. <laughs> Well, guys, if this story interests you, go to at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram. I will be posting key images and videos from this episode. Should we just go like full feral and just go to like Southern California high schools and like pick it about like how there's censorship in schools and like just have a bunch of pictures of like, you know, uh, whatever the fuck the river witch is on it, yeah. like on sticks and just be like, they're censoring our kids. <laughs> ah, they're trying to cover up our heritage. The answer is yes. I support that. Let's do it. You guys, do you want to see us do that? Yeah, you guys let us know uh, at the end of this episode, like, what do you think? Was this uh, a murder that should be forgiven or was this a murder that should not be forgiven? Yeah. Who was guilty and who was innocent? Who do you place most of the blame on? I mean, the guy that got murdered also, like, he should have just shot those people the day, the second day they showed up. He should have just fucking punched them in the face. As soon as he opened the door and saw it was that (laughs) fucking weirdo John Blymeyer, he should have just immediately punched him in the face and been like, get the fuck out of here. But instead, he was too nice. (sighs) Nice guys always finish last. I guess. Well... BRB got to go legend tripping to uh, Pennsylvania so that someone can uh, use the power of God to cure my back knee. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye.